For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Recorded live. The second is a five and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $189. The third is a three and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $189. And our premier tabletop distiller is a three and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $250. All our distillers have a stainless steel boiling pot, dome, and cooling tubes. And the Premier version also has a splash flap to protect against contamination of the cooling tubes. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com for more information and protect your water supply.
Hi, good evening all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is still the 13th of January, 2015. It is Tuesday evening, and it is about, uh, about 8.09 Pacific time. That's all true where you're at. We are, in fact, live. You can call in 800-596-8191 or go to theamericanvoice.com. The or theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. The other folks in there, or you can uh, leave a question uh, or a comment in there for me, or you can just uh, chat with the other folks or ignore everything and just watch the other people in there. Anyway, uh, let's see. Oh, yes, uh, earlier today during the show there was a, problem with the 24k stream apparently it was uh not on my end it appeared that i was having a problem with my encoder but apparently the problem with my encoder was the server was uh having a difficulty so they resolved that and everything's fine and it was uh, about well five minutes after my show was over everything resolved itself and went back to uh, working Good. So there you have it. That's good. So, folks, though, I'd like to tell you, if you ever do experience a problem with one of the streams or any other way of listening, go to the chat room, let me know, or send me an email, AmericanVoiceRadio at Yahoo.com. Website. Just let me know. Okay? Tell me what, what is wrong where you're listening. I'd say probably 80% of the time, it's on the listener's end. I'm not pointing fingers at blaming anybody. I'm just saying, that's what happens. But there's that 20% when it's on my end or on the server end where, you know, that's my responsibility. I have to get on them and say, hey, man, we're having a problem. You're going to have to fix it. And, um, you know, for you guys to help me out that way is a help. I mean, you might feel like you're complaining, but, you know, you're not. You're letting me know. And, uh, you know, look, I'm like everybody else. I don't like to hear people are having problems. It doesn't make me happy to get emails from you saying, hey, this isn't working, that isn't working, whatever. But whether I like it or not, it's necessary. Okay? And I do appreciate it. I don't have to like it to appreciate it, okay? Anyway, so I do appreciate it when you do that because, look, there's so many things that can go wrong in, in in what, you know, is going on that, you know, it's really, when you look at it, amazing that it works at all. <laughs> I mean, it, it really is. Anyway, I uh, hope you all listened to the uh, prior show there with uh, – Alfred Adas, I uh, always like being on there with Al, and uh, uh, to me, anyway, it was a very interesting show because it was the information that I hadn't seen, and it, it you know, it provided a very instructive uh, bit of information to me that I used to our benefit. There is no better information than that, you know. 
Anyway, let's get on to some things and stuff. Did you read this, that some bartender plotted to poison Bonehead, Speaker of the House? I mean, I can't blame the guy, but I mean, you know, poison him, really, as a bartender, and you figured you'd get away with that? Wow. Well, apparently he didn't, because they caught him. But I don't remember in my life reading about any bartenders trying to poison any congressmen. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this has happened before, but I don't remember it happening before. And if it hasn't, is this a sign, do you think, that the American people are just about had enough of this nonsense coming out of Washington, D.C.? I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that that is it? Now, Americans have plenty of reasons, too, because you have forces of evil. That's how I'm going to just refer to them. Because, you know, it's the whole fruit and tree thing. They do evil. Well, the tree must be evil. They work for the forces of evil. Nearly two months after Obama announced his immigration executive actions, which really weren't, uh, but anyway, questions remain over whether the Department of Homeland Security can be ready to process millions of additional immigrants through an already burdened system. Well, the fact is they're not planning on processing anybody. They're just going to let them in. DHS is on a hiring as it sets an ambitious schedule outlined in a recent memo from the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, the DSH agency in charge of processing the request for accepting new applicants. Now do you see why Department of Homeland Security was so necessary? It wasn't to, oh, information share and protect America better. No, it was to put a lot of different agencies under one guy. One guy who answers to one other guy. Basically, every agency that was put under Homeland Security is now the president's own little agency to boss around any way he pleases. Hey, let's not forget, Obama's not the one that implemented Homeland Security. He's just using it. This is the problem, see, folks. Some of you people out there, I don't know who you could possibly be, but some of you people out there actually supported George Bush. Okay? And you thought, oh, well, Georgie boy, he's such a cool guy. He looks like somebody I'd like to have a beer with. Oh, he said, oh, look, he's so stupid, isn't that cute? Oh, sure, let him build Homeland Security. What the heck, he's a good guy. Yeah, well, he's gone. You think Obama's a good guy, too? Well, there's people out there that think he's a good guy, too. Doesn't matter. Every time one of these tyrants creates some, uh, you know, tyrannical power for their use, but it's okay because they're good guys, well, guess what? There's somebody going to replace them, and they aren't good guys. They never are good guys. They're always worse. And here's a newsflash. 
George Bush wasn't a good guy either, okay? George Bush was a puppet. The agency plans to begin accepting applications in late February under an expanded program for those who came to the U.S. illegally as children. And the agency is looking to May to implement the biggest and most controversial plank, 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 get it, plank, of Obama's plan, effectively legalizing potential millions of parents of U.S. citizens and legal residents. You get you get what that is, folks? So now, the woman who crawled her pregnant self across the border to drop her baby here, and the corrupt criminal Supreme Court says, well, you hit the dirt in the United States, you're a U.S. citizen. Now, she's going to get to be legalized also. But the colossal effort on a tight timetable perhaps inevitably has some questioning whether they can pull it off. One source inside the Department of Homeland Security told Fox News that so far not enough has been done to get that machine up and running on time. The source raised the specter of the healthcare.gov launch. Obama's in a hurry. The New World Order's in a hurry. They are running as fast as they can to get their little New World Order machinery running as fast as they can. They're running out of time, and they know it, folks. How come they know it and you don't know it? You know what, folks? You need to start leaning on your congressman. That's right, your representative. You know, the vast, vast majority, biggest ever in history of Republicans in the House of Representatives, you need to start leaning on them hard and say, you know what, you better defund this, because guess what, if they're already having trouble getting it together, they're going to have even more trouble. You you know, it's not easy to hire people that can even, you know, (laughs) read past the seventh grade level. And it's even harder to hire them if you can't pay them. Yeah. So take away the money. That's what the House of Representatives is there for. That's really their function. In the grand scheme of the Republican form of government that the founding fathers set up, which, of course, uh, we diminished and nearly destroyed with the 17th Amendment, that's what the House of Representatives is there to do. Oh, sure, they get to vote on stuff, pass it off to the Senate, but the Senate does most of the heavy lifting, okay? They approve treaties. They approve all the appointees to the head places in the government. They approve all the ambassadors that will represent the United States abroad. The Senate's the one that does all that, and they get to vote on things too. The House of Representatives, which is the people's house, gets to control the money, because before the Federal Reserve, when the Constitution was written, the money was the people. So the people got to decide, no, you can pass whatever law you want. You can say you're going to do whatever you'd like. 
find the money elsewhere because we're not you're not getting it from us. But this House of Representatives under that girl boner, him in his little pink tie and his tears. They don't have the gonads to stand up to this guy because they're so worried about, oh, but we want to have a Republican president. We want to have a Republican president, so we don't want to do anything that might upset the vote. We don't want to do anything to upset anybody. Let's just let's just skate along for two weeks and let Obama do whatever he wants. We don't want to look like we're causing trouble. Oh, no, no, no. The American people overwhelmingly put the Republicans in the House of Representatives and took control of the Senate because they were promised by those people that they would stop, one, Obamacare, and two, this immigration. And now they're backpedaling on all of it. Well, we don't worry, we, you know, uh, we're not so sure we can get rid of Obamacare because, well, it's already a year old and all that, and, you know. Oh, immigration, well, we don't know because, you know, oh, we'll lose all those Latino voters and then we'll never get a Republican president. Hey, you know what? I don't even want a Republican president. If the Republicans have the House and Senate, you know what? If you're a Republican out there, you might think that'd be a great idea, huh? Why don't you look back and see what a great idea that was? Oh, you thought Ronald Reagan was a great idea, right? Well, you know the mess we're in now, the fix we're in now, the economic collapse we're just about to get on into all started with him. Oh, yeah, he's the one that facilitated it. Except it wasn't really Reagan, because Reagan was just an actor, a straw man, a puppet. That's all he was. That's all he ever was. George Sr. Bush was running the show. What did he do during the Reagan administration? What do you think he was doing? You think NAFTA and GATT just wrote themselves in a day or two? They were working on it. He was negotiating it. The whole Reagan administration, he was the one pushing the so-called deregulation. Deregulation just meant, oh, hey, let's take away all those rules and safeties that we put in there after the bankers screwed us the first time in 1929, and let's take them away and deregulate them so they can run fast and loose and grow the economy because, hey, I got a lot of money to borrow because, well, I got to be the defender of freedom and put out a business to evil empires. And you know what? It's bad news when either one of these parties controls the whole shebang. Really, really bad. Folks, gridlock is the best thing we can hope for. Honestly, it's sad, but it's true. Do you really think, I mean, really, do any of you out there, do you wake up in the morning and go, gosh, you know, oh, it's a nice day, but, geez, things could be a whole lot better if there was 
just more federal regulations and laws. Do any of you wake up thinking that? Probably not, huh? What do you think they do in Washington, D.C.? How many laws do they repeal? Nothing, ever. Just more and more and more, more regulations, more laws. Because, whoa, boy, that sure makes things a lot better. Really. And then they get on the news and act as though gridlock is a bad thing. Gridlock is a bad thing. Because, well, gee, everything would just be a lot better if we could just have some more federal regulations and laws. Yeah. Because there's not enough of those. Oh, boy. You already heard about this, right? The leaked documents about how Obama has ordered basically no more arrests of uh, illegals, no more deportations of illegals. Let them go. Don't detain them. Just let them go. See, and they're saying that, oh, we're not going to be able to uh, process them. Obama's already told them not to process them. He's told them to let them go. Do not detain them. Do not deport them. Yeah. Wait a minute. Is that what the law says? I don't think it is. So, oh, wait. That would mean that, uh, well, that would mean he's usurping his power, violating his oath of office, and committing treason. Why, geez, that couldn't be. Anyway, here's something now. You got to wonder about this. Killing Texas. Killing Texas. This is outside of this is the town. That's on a 24-year-old Fort Hood soldier found dead outside his home Tuesday were negative for the Ebola virus, they say. Carl R. Darnell Medical Center, medical off the shoals, confirmed at 8.30 p.m. that the more conclusive PCR assay test results are negative for the presence of the Ebola virus disease. Earlier Tuesday evening, Fort Hood Media Relations Chief Chris Hogg said... The initial test on the soldier, who had recently deployed to Liberia, tested negative for the virus. There was no indication Ebola was present when he was found dead near the doorstop of his Canterbury Drive home around 7.30 a.m. Tuesday. Responders decided to test the man as a precaution. Officials say the soldier was granted an emergency leave that was not medical-related and involved a family emergency. It is not known if the soldier was hospitalized or if the family emergency was a false report. The soldier 
whose name has not been released pending notification of family, was under self-monitoring, where he had to check in with officials twice a day before his emergency. About 3,000 troops are being deployed to fight the outbreak. Pardon me. You know, I'd like to know how troops are supposed to fight a virus. What what are they doing now? I mean, is that what you want, folks? Is that what you would want? Gosh, I don't feel good. Somebody call the Army. Quick, send some troops. I don't feel good. I think I have a disease. Get the troops. Really? Ebola's killed more than 8,200 people in Africa, by the way. Oh, this should make you feel much more comfortable. Troops returning from West Africa must undergo a 20-day, uh, 21-day monitoring period at a controlled monitoring site on post. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought we were told that, you know, all the nurses and doctors coming home, oh, we don't have to do that. Don't worry about it. The little bicycle riding wench nurse in New Jersey that complained about uh, being quarantined, oh, it's, it doesn't have to do that. Well, apparently the Army thinks it does. Why is that? I mean, if there's nothing to worry about, then why are they bothering doing it? Well, Oh, this is a long shot, but unless they're lying about the whole thing, think that could be? There I go again, you see. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in a second.
that denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be dependent on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free to air satellite system from ABR. The ABR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75 centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541 2 That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click the satellite system. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Few things in this world are more important than clean, pure water. Understanding this, ABR makes four tabletop water distillers available to you for purchase. First, we have the five and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $139. The second is a five and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $189. The third is a three and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $189. And our premier tabletop distiller is a three and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $250. All our distillers have a stainless steel boiling pot, dome, and cooling tubes. And the premier version also has a splash flap to protect against contamination of the cooling tubes. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com for more information and protect your water supply.
Now the second one, I'm giving everybody a chance in the chat room because I know the uh, streams have a little bit of a delay. That's that song, but uh, so far that's a no go. That I think uh, just have another tie here for the uh, dump the room tonight because here it comes. Going once, going twice, okay, no guesses. It was the Sonic. All right, let's go. Let's get on to some stuff. House Minority Leader Nazi Pelosi. Hey, what's not to like, right? Yep, she will appoint. Why does she get to appoint anybody? Really, your party lost. You shouldn't be allowed to appoint anybody to anything. But, nevertheless, you see, this is the problem, folks. The Democrats, especially in the House of Representatives, were basically shown the door except for the most communistic, homosexual cesspools in the country like San Francisco, where Nazi Pelosi comes from, basically told them, get out. We don't like you anymore. But she's going to appoint the first Muslim member to the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. That's right. And this permanent select committee on intelligence deals with sensitive information on America's war against terrorism. Wow, isn't that a great idea? Yeah. Representative Andre Carson, second Muslim elected to the House, following the election of Keith Ellison. Why does he get to have a seat on the Select Committee on Intelligence that deals with sensitive There are only two Muslims in the whole House of Representatives. 
Carson's nomination was announced by Pelosi, closed-door weekly Democratic caucus meeting, and will would be announced publicly in the coming days. You know, folks, you like it when somebody spits in your face? Because that's what Nazi Pelosi is doing. Spitting in your face. Oh, you don't like Muslims? Oh, you don't like Democrats, communists? Oh, you don't like homosexuals? Oh, you're sick of all our crap? Well, how's this? We're going to put enemies, because if you call yourself a Muslim, you are an enemy of Christianity. Actually, you're an enemy of every religion that isn't Muslim. But being a Christian, I don't care about the other religions. I care about Christianity. And the Muslims are an enemy to Christianity. Sorry, they are the ones that claim that. This crap about people saying, oh, it's the religion of peace, and they don't really want to do this, and yeah, okay, a small select group of Muslims that actually read the Quran, right? Because if you're a Muslim that reads the Quran, then you've read that you have to go to a holy war against everybody who's not you. And if you're one of those few Muslims that read the Quran, you'll also know that it's okay to lie to everybody who isn't a Muslim, as long as you're lying to promote Islam. You know, it's funny that the Jews consider the Muslims their big enemy when the Jews and the Muslims are nothing but brothers. Right? This is a family feud, folks, that none of us should be getting into. Honestly, we should be telling the Jews and the Muslims, you know what? Beat it. All of you out of here. Go fight it out in the desert. Let us know who wins, uh, but we're not being involved. And you might think that, well, what is that? That's crazy talk. It's not crazy talk. The Jews and the Muslims both are from Abraham. They both claim Abraham because they have, you know, hey, Ishmael is Islam from Abraham. They're both from Abraham. This is a family feud, folks. Anyway. Uh, Carson was first elected to the House in 2008. Converted to Islam 10 years before taking office. In 2014, Carson came under fire for being scheduled to appear on a panel entitled Ferguson is Our Issue. At a convention of the Muslim American Society Islamic Circle of North America in Chicago, along with Maison Mokhtar, a webmaster and fundraiser for Al-Qaeda. Hey, uh, you know, getting better? You know, Boner should pull some rule somewhere out of his hat. Oh, that's right, he can't, because you know what? 
he's on his knees sucking up to Nazi Pelosi every day. However, after delivering a keynote speech, without explanation, Carson did not appear on the panel. In 2011, Carson told the Congressional Black Caucus that, quote, some of them in Congress right now of this Tea Party movement would love to see you and me hanging on a tree. Not in the Tea Party, and I'd like to see most of Congress hanging from lots of trees. Oh, after their speedy process trial for treason, of course. Political, uh, Politico noted that his spokesman, Jason Tomsky, later explained party agenda jeopardizes our most vulnerable and leaves them without the ability to improve their economic our most vulnerable they're not our the tea party is against illegal aliens they are not ours they are somebody else's problem dumped in our living room get out Tea Party, this, get this, the Tea Party is protecting its millionaire and oil company friends while gutting critical services that they know protect the livelihood of African Americans as well as Latinos and other disadvantaged minorities. Wow. Critical services. Like what? Food stamps? You mean welfare? You mean free housing? You mean free medical? You mean Section 8? You mean affirmative action? You mean all that? You know what? Welfare is not a livelihood. Going to work is a livelihood. 2012, Carson caused another flap while speaking to the Islamic Circle of North America by saying that America will never tap into educational innovation and ingenuity without looking at the model that we have in our madras, madrasas in our schools, where innovation is encouraged, where the foundation is the Quran. Really, Carson later released a statement explaining, while I do not believe that any particular faith should be the foundation of public schools, imagine politicians standing up ever saying that America will never tap into educational innovation and ingenuity without looking at the model that we have in our Sunday school classes, in our private religious schools, where innovation is encouraged, where the foundation is the Holy Bible. The media would have crucified him. While I do not believe any particular faith should be the it is important that we take note of the instructional tools these 
schools utilized to empower their young people. Christian, Jewish, and Islamic schools have experienced notable success by casting off a one-size-fits-all approach to education. And this is a model we must replicate. Having attended a parochial elementary school myself, I've seen these successes firsthand. Wow. This guy now is going to be privy to some of this nation's most... Matter of fact, this Muslim piece of garbage get to know things you will never get to know. What about that? Anyway... So there you have that. Now, I mean, Nancy Pelosi just doesn't quit, does she? I mean, you've got, I mean, can you see it? Nazi Pelosi is undermining the Congress. Barack Obama is undermining the executive. The Republicans are sitting around with their thumbs so far up their behind, wondering, oh, I sure hope we can get a Republican president. Oh, boy, Jeff Bush sure looks good. We like Jeff. We like Jeff. We like Jeff. Let's not do anything to ruin it for Jeff. You know what? The American people overwhelmingly elected these new people into Congress for two things. Stop illegal aliens from invading our country and get rid of Obamacare. If you would do those two things, you may very well get a Republican president. Because if you pass those things, Obama will veto them. And the Democrats will support him. And then you can point to that and say, see, we came in here and we did what you wanted us to do, and they won't let us. Until you get rid of them, we can't do anything for you. But you can't just sit there and say, well, they're not going to go along with it, so we're not even going to try because, well, what's the point? What's the point? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know what? Up in the tree with you, too. Unbelievable. You know, that's all you got to do, folks. Just do the legislation. Let Obama, let Obama stick his foot in it. Let Obama destroy the Communist Party in America. Good. Got to go. I'll see you again tomorrow. We got good stuff coming up, so stay tuned. And as always, thanks for listening.
American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19, 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit discount gold and silver trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Few things in this world are more important than clean, pure water. Understanding this, ABR makes four tabletop water distillers available to you for purchase. First, we have the five and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $139. The second is a five and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $189. The third is a three and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $189. And our premier tabletop distiller is a three and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $250. All our distillers have a stainless steel boiling pot, dome, and cooling tubes. And the premier version also has a splash flap to protect against contamination of the cooling tubes. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com for more information and protect your water supply. How many people do you know these days with a neurological disorder? How many family members or people in your circle of friends have something like fibromyalgia or lupus? How about a brain tumor? Studies in the New England Journal of Medicine show a growing trend in the rate of such disorders in recent years. Perhaps like me, you've never given the issue much thought. But in 2002, I could no longer ignore it. I also became a statistic when I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. It was the summer of the Great Fire in Tucson, Arizona, when I began my research and traveled across this country to find the truth.
said, yeah, the, you know, the technology we have in looking at the brain has changed rather dramatically. Now, the increase in brain tumors has nothing to do with our ability to see these things, because that's been looked at. And the studies have shown that it's a real increase in brain tumors. It has nothing to do with our improvements in technology. The National Cancer Institute recorded an impressive increase in incident rates of primary brain cancer since 1985 and possibly as early as 1984. Dr. H.J. Roberts, director for the Palm Beach Institute for Medical Research, found this trend particularly disturbing. At a time when this trend was singularly attributed to more innovative scanning and diagnostic procedures, Roberts noticed a series of conflicting themes. First, adequate brain scanning devices were widely available for at least 10 years prior to this report. Second, there were simply more people affected with brain cancer. They had nothing to do with the change in the way they were diagnosed or a different way of classifying the disease. Third, between 1983 and 1987, incidents of other forms of cancer outside the brain remained the same and, in some cases, declined. So why the vast increase in brain cancer and brain disorders since 1984? I'll refer to a published study by foremost neuroscientist, Dr. John Olney. He suggests one likely candidate. 1983, the U.S. population began ingesting significant quantities of a substance never before used for human consumption. Artificial sweetener aspartame was quickly introduced to consumers. In 1984, 6,900,000 pounds of aspartame was consumed by Americans. This rate doubles by the next year and continues to climb into the 90s. And it was fully marketed for pop and everything by uh, July to August of 1983. Six months later, by 1984, the brain tumor rate had already jumped 10% in the United States. Diabetes rate had jumped 30%, and the incidence of brain lymphoma, a very aggressive and unusual type of brain tumor, jumped 60%. The uh, enormity of the problem is indicated by the fact that by 1988, in its own publication, 80% of the complaints about food and additives that were volunteered to the FDA, and again, it didn't have to be submitted, had to deal with aspartame products. these people uh, who say, well, you know, I take uh, MSG or Nutrisweet, it doesn't seem to bother me at all, uh, they're more resistant to the obvious toxic effects, but they're still getting very subtle toxic effects that over many years has been obvious. Uh, Some persons can be exposed for the first time and break up with a rash, have terrible headaches or something, presumably they've never been exposed to it before. Um, but on the other hand, people who have taken it a long time, exposing the body, large doses of the components of aspartame, that's the, in the realm of toxicity. And again, it, it's, it's variability in your sensitivity to toxins. Some people may notice very little of anything. A majority of people will have one of a number of symptoms. 
because we know that the aspartame, because it is a poison that affects protein synthesis, because it affects the, how the synapse operates in the brain, and because it affects DNA, can affect numerous organs. So you can get a lot of different symptoms that seem unconnected. But in looking at the list of symptoms submitted to the FDA, most of them are neurological or in some way connected to the nervous system. Uh, so the nervous system seems to be one of the areas that's most affected. So we see people have difficulty thinking. They feel like they're walking around in a cloud or a fog. It's a subchronic level. It's not like you go out and you drink a bottle of methanol and you have this acute reaction to it. Uh, what, we're having, what we're seeing over a period of time is this slow accumulation of toxins within the body that, have, that start to disrupt the, the, um, the normal activity of the brain and the endocrine system, which is controlled by the, by the brain itself. That's really the, the sort of uh, symptoms one can get are pretty protein all types of symptoms. Clearly, if you need to look at the chemistry of it, I don't want to get too technical, but it clearly has an impact on what are called biogenic amines, these neurotransmitters in the brain, carbonephrine, so on. We know, we've known for a long time, that when you take in a lot of aspartame in conjunction with carbohydrates, you will decrease the availability of uh, L-tryptophan, which is the building block for serotonin. It's been a lot of media attention recently to serotonin. Very, very important neurotransmitter. Regulation of a variety of functions. Aspartame is uh, an artificial sweetener. Additive. Chemical. The molecule is made up of three components. Two are amino acids, the so-called building blocks of protein. The other is aspartic acid, 20%. The other 10% is a so-called methyl ester, which as soon as it's swallowed, becomes free methyl alcohol, methanol, wood alcohol, which is a poison, real poison. really began with a patient. I had a patient treated for a number of years for a recurrent depression. Came into the hospital in what we call a manic state. I guess she was very, very speeded up before I can stop it. Well, I'd never seen her manic before. Never. Within a day or two of her admission to the hospital, she had a sudden grand mal seizure, epileptic-like seizure. No history of seizure disorder could not explain either the sudden onset of mania lessons for years, usually in a bipolar patient with a manic Antidepressants will trigger a manic episode. She'd been on, on uh, antidepressants for a long time, no manic episode. Suddenly, was manic and then had a grand mal seizure. Clinically, I could not explain that. So it was effective work looking at what was different. The only thing we could find lose some weight, switched from iced tea sweetened with sugar, drinking fairly large amounts of it. You could, you 
could speculate that perhaps the caffeine would not change the total quantity. She'd had this amount of iced tea for many years without nanic episodes, without grand mal seizure. Different is the aspartame. Started looking at that, and it made sense. Aspartame would lower the seizure threshold. It was what we knew about the chemistry of aspartame. It points to the possibility that aspartame could, one, trigger a manic episode, two, could lower the seizure threshold sufficiently for her to have a grand mal seizure. Other patients like that, I wrote about it. And that was in uh, 1985, really two years or so after the introduction of aspartame. I realized that something was going awry, but I couldn't quite figure it out. And then after several years, putting amalgamating this experience, it's very important that you listen to your patients, because the great Dr. Osler said, listen to the patients, they're telling you what's wrong. I realized that the common denominator Under various trade names, particularly NutraSweet, Equal, Crystallite, and so forth. I was primarily using NutraSweet, lots of it, because I was a big coffee drinker. Caffeinated, I was taking care of myself. <laughs> I mean, there was just all kinds of things that, you know, the diet sodas, the, you know, I used to uh, eat jello all the time, like, you know, Cool Whip and gum. I used to, you know, eat chew gum constantly back then. Um, Came home and decided I was going to be the good guy that I needed to be here for my child. Crazy. I drank crystallite tea. I switched from brewing my own tea to crystallite tea. So for years, I went on thinking what a smart person I am, drinking Diet Coke instead of regular Coke. And, and, and also, I carried it into other things as well, so that when I would sweeten my tea, I sweetened it with... Uh, with equal. And so when the uh, low-calf Kool-Aid hit the market uh, in 1983, I would have a drink with a Diet Coke. During the day, I would drink Diet Coke or coffee, decaffeinated, all day long. I was never around one or the other. I drove 10 states. I always had a thermos of coffee with me, very liberally treated with nutrisweet. I started out for doing blood drives, and um, I, I did the blood drive. I like talking and everything, so that was a good area for me to get into. I was always hyper and all that, and I would drink diet sodas like crazy there because we had it at our disposal all the time. And so the further and further I got on, then um, I did the Armed Forces Emergency Services, with the disaster, we work with um, people overseas during wartime. I grew up in a funeral. Don't just mean homes in the south. Um, I didn't meet my husband's father. Went on to have a child. And in the meantime, I had lost an eye in '87. I didn't meet him until '98. And um, so in 92, I had diabetes. Well, I tried 
stayed off the sweets and the cocoa and, the, you know, drinking the diet drinks on and off. And uh, I was a briefing attorney for a federal district judge, John H. Wood. The U.S. courthouse in San Antonio is named after him. And uh, then after serving as his briefing attorney for two years, I was appointed by Bill Sessions as assistant U.S. attorney for the Western District of Texas. Uh, served in that capacity for a little bit over four years, and during that time I was the president of the Federal Bar Association and very active in uh, legal matters and things like that. Had I seen the chemical formed on this product, I would never have touched it. Poisonous effects of methyl alcohol and, and its methyl esters are, are well known. And uh, within a day or two of my starting to drink it, not only did I feel the deterioration in my body, where I couldn't swim anymore and I didn't have the balance that I had and I was short of breath from a heart failure type of problem. But my wife saw all this much more objectively than I did. And she I was diagnosed with a northern disease back in 93 called lupus, SLE, systemic, which I've been dealing with. It was very severe to the point where I lost my job and eventually my insurance because over 40 doctors who saw me over a year's period kept doing one test after another. Every test came back negative. I've had some since 1983. I can go back to as far as 1983 and possibly even before that, but I only remember doctor's offices and, and you know the um, hospitalizations and things like that since 1983. Around January of 2002, I started getting dizzy. Go to the dryer to go take clothes out and fall down and not know why. The reason I found out I had brain tumor is I lost my voice during pollen season of the year 2000, of 98, excuse me. And um, in 98, my voice never came back from the pollen hoarseness. It happened to me every year. So I went to a specialist at a local hospital here in Atlanta, and I said, all my friend's voices come back, mine's gotten worse. And he went down my throat, and he said, well, your left vocal cord is completely atrophied, and it's been my experience when I see a condition like this, that there's a brain tumor someplace that causes that. Also, the vision um, hasn't stopped. And I, and I couldn't see. And I, I, I literally, I stopped driving because I did not feel comfortable behind the wheel. My endocrinologist told me that I have, most likely have, multiple sclerosis. So he sent me to a neurologist. The neurologist told me that, yes, I do have the muscle. i having double vision. And my doctor scheduled me to have an MRI. And uh, we were waiting on the results, and I'll never forget it. It was, oh, maybe a week or two before Christmas. And uh, the doctor called, and I, I was just ready to hear, well, you know, we couldn't find anything. Well, instead, he said, you have a brain tumor, and it's a rather large brain tumor. And a couple of days, I'd gone from being a two-mile-a-day swimmer to having such a toxic cardiomyopathy that I could hardly climb the stairs to my apartment. next six weeks, I went through all of the personal hells of poisoning and neurotransmitter depletion uh, from the 
mentioning about the picture Lou Gehrig receives. I'm still having a lot of pain, but she says, well, you'll live with pain. It's kind of, even though it's in the mission, you're going to have pain. So I went to Tampa, finally found the rheumatologist that she is a pregnant of, and oddly enough, he did the same blood test and said, you never had lymphoma. You have advanced fibromyalgia. <laughs> I said, I just give up. So he said, Mom, I just don't think you ever had lupus. But for whatever reason, you're able to do what you're doing because of what she gave you. So let's just go ahead and treat you as if you've been remission. And I'm going to treat you for lupus for fibromyalgia. But detail is very, very important. You have to get spellings names, birth dates names, everything. And with me being diagnosed with neural hearing loss, which has gotten worse, within, I've been um, checked the last three years every six months, and it's gotten gotten a lot worse. And now I'm taking, I have the two hearing aids that I have to have. I took the ice pops out thinking they were just the regular ones that I had been eating earlier. And my mother-in-law had taken my little one over to her house. So my husband and I were in movies, and we were going to have a date you know, just night out, you know, night to ourselves. And I pulled out the pops and went on to eat the four, three, four of the pops, the aspartame pops. Well, this was on a Saturday night. By 4 o'clock Sunday morning, I was digging holes in my hands. I looked like something out of a Vietnam camp from the bleeding. The doctor explained that one of the very probable side results would be a loss of short-term memory. Well, uh, I later learned that it had done a little bit more than that with me uh, in that it ruined my legal career. About then I tumbled, but only subconsciously. I said, well, you know, consciously suspect NutraSweet, but got off it and I started recovering. My doctors will not come out and absolutely put down in my knee that this is caused by estrogen. They will not do it. But they'll give me an aside like this. Thank God you're off nutritionally. That's what they'll say. But they won't put it in my record. We were still in the shelter, and I was there, and I had the, the um, water, and that's all I did was drink the water. And it was like each bottle I drank, the worse I got. And I had nothing else um, to eat or anything. There was nothing, you know, nothing else that I was ingesting at all. So that was actually a blessing because I was able to narrow it down. There must be, this must be it. Um, and I went around and I had the bottle and I was asking everybody, what's in this bottle? What is aspartame? And, um, and then that one lady had, uh, she, goes, oh, she goes, I've heard of it, she said. And then something kept flashing my mind, and I remember seeing the name somewhere. And I, I, like I said, I read all the time in magazines and all that. I don't know if it was in Time or Newsweek or something, but I remember seeing an article, and for some reason I keep saying that name. So uh, after I had uh, finished the shelter, I went and I was driving down the road, and my library, I volunteered at the library also. And so I stopped in there to say hello and all that and see how everything was going. And they actually had power in there. And I went in, I pulled it up on a computer. At that time, I didn't have a computer. And I never searched anything in my life. I had no clue. I didn't have email, and that's about it. Um, and I pulled up aspartame, and I just, my eyes lit up. I started crying. I was 
all their symptoms and 92 symptoms. I think I think I counted 79 of their symptoms. I've been in the hospital or, or to the doctors and complaints over 50 times for each one of them, well over. Turns out his wife was told she had lupus. Does it? They were getting ready to tell her she had multiple sclerosis, and she, her husband went home and jumped all over her, and she made her stop drinking the diet drinks, and all of a sudden things got a lot better for her. Basically how it happened was I put the diet drink down, and I didn't touch it again. This Friday, I think it was around the 19th. Last year? Yeah. My husband looked at me and he said, the next day, within 24 hours, he said, Stephen, you're not burnt like you were. You're not falling out like you were either. Over time, it got better. Because I was such a high user of aspartame through primarily Diet Cokes and Equal, and uh, those, those were primary ways, combined with the mountain of evidence, and, and other testimonials of people who have have had uh, terrible symptoms of every type of malady that you can imagine. And when they're removed from the aspartame, the symptoms go away. That's what you call strong, if not direct evidence, very strong circumstantial evidence. Judge Wood, the judge I used to work for, the federal judge, <coughs> uh, in his charts to the jury, when he would give a definition of circumstantial evidence, he would say, if as you go to bed at night there's no snow on the ground and you wake up in the morning and there's snow on the ground, you may reasonably assume that during the course of the night it snowed. That is an example of strong circumstantial evidence. You didn't see it snow. You can't <laughs> scientifically prove that the snow fell from the sky but it wasn't there at night, and in the morning it was. Therefore, you may conclude circumstantially that it snowed during the course of the night. And I would say that the evidence of, of, of my brain tumors being caused by aspartame are, are that strong to me. And then they rechallenge themselves knowingly or inadvertently. There's sort of something that made this house that they didn't realize contained. And these set of symptoms and problems promptly recur hours or a day or two, sometimes within minutes, and it does so repeatedly. And that is more than anecdotal. That is similar like the cock postulates for infection. Isolate the cause and then you inject in the animal, and you reproduce the problem. Many of these individuals that aspartame reactors have tested themselves five, 10, 20 times, every time getting the same response, and then they realized that this was a legitimate cause and effect relationship. I, my personal experience, from my own experience, and with patients, is that when somebody who's been poisoned by this goes off it, they very quickly notice an improvement. They almost equally quickly find out that it isn't over yet. They've got a lot of problems to deal with. And certainly uh, because I had to suffer with this and had patient groups that had to suffer with it, and then I would 
consult with doctors around the nation who are pretty much expert in, in the field of environmental ecology, I developed some therapeutic outlooks that people can have to help themselves. But the, the first thing you've got to learn is to listen to your body. If something's going wrong, try and backtrack to what you had or what you're breathing in your environment or what's going on around you. But the fact is this thing has been carefully studied, repeatedly studied, extensively studied, so that, as I said before, the FDA concluded it's one of the most thoroughly tested food additives they've ever seen. And the conclusion is that it's safe. They have made the claim years ago. They would help and support any legitimate researcher by aspartame and be helpful in any research. I've published my anecdotal knew of my plan by the way, but in the mid-90s, I wrote to the company stating that we wanted to do a double-blind study because my earlier work had indeed been for anecdotes. I pointed out that they had made the claim that they would supply aspartame. Company, uh, I sent the protocol for the study. Responded that this was unnecessary research and would not supply our Offered to buy the aspartame. They refused. They put up roadblocks. They made it very difficult for us to purchase. We did get USP grade But the point is that company made it very, very difficult, didn't follow through on their promise. Unnecessary, shouldn't be done, needn't be done. The Searle Company in quest to get approval for their product, uh, Aspartame, they uh, conducted a study on animals in which they fed some animals, like the low-dose, medium-dose, high-dose of the product, and then they used control animals that supposedly did not get any of the product. When they submitted this to the FDA and the FDA looked at it, there was some question about the study. Well, one of the scientists and neuroscientists looked at some of this and saw a lot of red flags and said there's some real questions here about tumors being caused by this product, particularly brain tumors. Uh, so they uh, ordered a study to be done by the Bureau of Foods in charge of this uh, group look through this, the research that had been done by C.D. Sparrow, and that's what the Brussels report is about. And this is the uh, report here. Basically what it shows is that either a lot of purposeful shenanigans was carried on to get this product approved, or, as he states it, it was the world's worst research. They found that uh, what they did is the animals that died after being fed nutritionally, they didn't autopsy the animals right away. Uh, some of them were not autopsied more than a year afterwards. And of course the tissues broke down and, and liquefied and so they couldn't do proper studies on them, but they reported it as if they had. And they reported these as normal. Uh, 
they found that they were taking tumors and cutting them out and throwing them away and saying the animal was normal. They had animal tissues that had obvious tumors in it that were reported normal. They had, uh, in one of the cases here, that's reported a, a lymph node that was enlarged. And uh, this G.D. Serral pathologist reported it as a normal lymph node. When the scientists from the Bureau of Foods looked at it, uh, there was an obvious lymphosarcoma, highly malignant tumor. Uh, the uh, notations about the testicular atrophy were not noted. There were just numerous, numerous things in this, in this report that showed that, uh, in my estimation, there was an effort to cover up what was being found so that they could get approval. There were so many things wrong with the submitted data from G.D. Searle originally. They had a monkey study. And in the monkey study, they were fed aspartame. And they were fed aspartame with milk. The milk, as you know, normally slows down the absorption of certain chemicals. Longer for the aspirin to go to work. Well, even though the monkeys were drinking aspartame and milk, out of the seven monkeys they had, I think one or two died and four or five had grand mal seizures. Now, these test results were not satisfactory to G.D. Searle. They weren't going to be able to show these to the FDA saying, hey, look, aspartame, even with milk, caused monkeys to have grand mal seizures. When we did our double-blind study here at this hospital, not really a tragic situation. We needed volunteers. We looked at both patients, that is, people who had a history of mood disorder, and we needed some controls, that is, people without a One of the people that I used in this study was a PhD psychologist. Several days into this study, he had an emergency. He had an ophthalmologic emergency. He had a sudden thing. Uh, his eye and retina rushed to Cleveland for emergency surgery. His eye could not be saved. He lost the vision in one eye. At the same time, we had another participant in the study, a nurse, also had an episode of intraocular bleeding, bleeding within her eye. In the course of the study, had eye emergency. Bottom line was, of all years, the most tested product in the additive industry, additives. Now, additives important. Aspartame was approved. Uh, Grass generally recognized the safe product. In which case, unlike drugs, it, uh, if people have reactions to it, it does not have to be reported to the FDA. Uh, what I found was really quite frightening. That was that, yes, there were many, many studies in the literature which did attack all funded by the industry. Wheat industry or off-print industry sponsored, paid for the study. Were independent studies, the 
virtually all of the independent studies that are not funded by the all of them did identify one type of problem. So they got the test results they wanted by manipulating the message. Not to say that aspartame was safe or that aspartame does not induce seizures because it does. Um, just to show you that the scientific data nowadays is unreliable. So how you design the study helps, and I think that many of the sponsored studies set up in such a way results could be predicted ahead of time and would be supportive of the safety of the product. There is no evidence at the present time that I'm aware of that aspartame in large amounts has a significant effect on brain chemistry. Can we go through what exactly an excitotoxin is? Well, an excitotoxin, uh, basically what it does, it's a normal transmitter in the brain, chemicals that allow brain cells to communicate. But if it's in even a minute over-concentration in the brain, it causes the brain cells to become extremely excited. And they become so excited, they'll very quickly burn themselves out and die. That was one of the first observations by Dr. Olnick, and he gave it the name excitotoxin. When was the first uh, time that you heard about aspartame? Was it? Was I? Uh, it was in 1970, and it was an interesting story. I was called by Dr. John Olney from Washington University, who I had been working with on MSG and baby food. We had started an, an examination of MSG and baby food that led to the baby food industry taking MSG out of baby food, and it was done by the Senate Nutrition Committee. I was the special counsel to the Senate the Select Committee on Nutrition. And the, we ran hearings on food. And one of the things we talked about was uh, MSG in baby food because it caused holes in the brains of rats that were being tested by Dr. Olney. And uh, it was Dr. Olney's hypothesis that a substantial amount of mental retardation, 95% of which is of unknown origin, that a substantial portion of that came from environmental insults, chemicals in the environment, food, air, water, and so forth. And he was testing it. And one of them was MSG, and it caused these holes in the brains of mice in his system. And ultimately, that led to having MSG taken out of baby food. He called me to say that he'd just done a study on aspartic acid, one of the primary components of NutraSweet, and it was doing the same thing as MSG. And that caused him to be quite concerned about the fact that that uh, cereal drug company at the time was planning to use this as a sweetener. But now, after years of retesting this, most authorities agree there's no question that feeding MSG to animals produces this brain damage. It's not a question any longer, it's a fact. Uh, even good studies that show that if you breed the pregnant animals the MSG, their offspring has impaired brain function. And when you measure the neurochemical uh, analysis of the brain of the animal, it's impaired all the way through the animal's youth up until adulthood. And they never quite recover from it. One of the conferences which I 
was a study. Uh, another cytotoxin, neurotoxin problem. I could not understand why with the controls had almost the same reaction. But it turned out that one of the presumably inert components, capsules of products with, M with MSG, contained aspartame. It really was, there was something that the, even the investigators did not realize. Component of presumed placebo. There's central mechanism that actually produces the destruction and damage to the brain is excitotoxicity. That's pretty well agreed upon now. The frightening thing is that we're adding tons of these excitotoxins to our food, uh, either in the form of MSG or part of the aspartame molecule, uh, with partic acid, which is an excitotoxin. Can, can we talk about the blood-brain barrier and, and how it breaks down, um, like with the hypoglycemia being an example of that, and, and, and how um, excitotoxins can pass through that on occasion? Yeah, the blood-brain barrier is one of the big defenses that the industry always gives. They say, well, these things can't get through the blood-brain barrier. Uh, I did rather extensive research in this area, and what I discovered was that there are numerous conditions that we're all subjected to that cause the breakdown of the normal blood-brain barrier. Uh, number one is aging. As we age, our blood-brain barrier begins to deteriorate, becomes poor. Anything we eat will pass through the blood into the brain. Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, all of these diseases associated with breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. Strokes, even silent strokes, produce a breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. Exposure to certain pesticides, herbicides, will break down the blood-brain barrier. Hypoglycemia will break it down. Certain drugs will cause it to break down. Free radical generation will cause it to break down. Well, we know many of the diseases are caused by free radicals, like diabetes, you can have very high free, level, uh, free radical levels. Extreme exercise, you produce a lot of free radicals. All of this breaks down the blood-brain barrier. Multiple sclerosis, autoimmune diseases, lupus, all these things are associated with the breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. So we know there are millions and millions of people out there who have, at one time or another, a very porous blood-brain barrier. So when they drink a diet cola or they eat MSG, it passes right into their brain very easily. The other thing that we discovered was that even if you had a completely normal, intact blood-brain barrier, if you expose that person to a high dose of these excitotoxins over a prolonged period of time, it will seep past the barrier into the brain. same building blocks that are found in all of the proteins that we eat, whether they be bananas or meat or peanuts or what, what have you, they are found in nutrisweet. Now, the amino acids are contained in food, but if you have protein, meat, fish, and so forth, there may be 4% phenylalanine food, not 50%. And we simply, biologically, don't know how still how to react to this flooding of these enormous amounts. 
especially uh, crosses the blood-brain barrier. It's meant to protect against, biologically, against poisons and so forth. It's also what's called a dipeptide, that is, two amino acids stuck together. One of those amino acids is something called phenylalanine. Phenylalanine is the building block for another important neurotransmitter called norepinephrine. So when you take in aspartame, you increase the availability of one and you decrease the availability of the other, you change ratios. And when you do that, when you change ratios of norepinephrine and serotonin, it certainly affects brain function. Lead them to affect seizure threshold, which is why I think it's like bothersome. A lot of seizure activity. They knew that this uh, product, aspartame, with time breaks down into a product called diketopeprazine. Uh, diketopeprazine chemically is closely related to a carcinogenic compound. It causes cancer in a lot of animals that they're exposed to and humans. Uh, so they asked the GD Serial Company to do a separate study with. Uh, the diketopeprazine. Well, when they looked at this study, they found some shenanigans as well. And one of the things is when you mix up the diketopeprazine with the animal's food, you have to homogenize it so that it's evenly distributed and the animal can't see it and avoid it. Uh, well, I've seen pictures of the feed, and they left it in big clumps so the rats were eating around it, not actually eating the diketopeprazine. There was also evidence that they were giving the diketopeprazine uh, to the control animal. Of course, this came out because in the original study, they found a 47-fold increase in brain tumors. In the diketopeprazine repeat study, they said, oh, well, look, the control animals and the, and the uh, aspartame-fed animals have the same instance of brain tumor. Well, when the neuropathologist looked at it, they said, well, that's kind of strange because now your control animals have uh, a very high instance of brain tumors that's not naturally found in these mice. And when they looked at the feed, they found out there was some mix-ups in the feed, so that the diketopeprazine was being fed to the control animal. Um, these are the sort of things that's in the Bresler report that they uh, not like the public to know about, because it's very frightening. Uh, you know, when the pathologist, uh, Dr. Adrian Gross, looked at the, the material as well, uh, very well-regarded pathologist, and he looked at it, and he was absolutely shocked. Enormous increase in tumors, particularly the brain tumors. And of course, that's exactly what we're seeing now, is this uh, tremendous increase in brain tumors, and it's completely unexplained uh, by the neurological profession. a methyl group which is found in all fruits and vegetables. Everything that we eat has methyl groups. The body metabolizes it, it breaks down aspartame, wind up with a small amount of methanol, which is wood alcohol. That in turn is broken down into fructose. But it cannot get rid of the body stores. The industry has made a big deal about uh, supposedly the fact that take in fruit, you take in more methanol. 
they don't have the fact that nature, methanol in fruit, is bound to something called pectin. Humans lack the enzyme to split the methanol off from pectin. So it goes through the body without doing any damage whatsoever. Opposed to the methanol because it's bound to Even though there's more of it, it's totally harmless. Aspartame, you have pure, unadulterated, free methanol and then formaldehyde. It's a small amount, but the body can't get rid of it. Cumulative phenomenon. Very, very toxic product. Ethyl alcohol is deadly and probably provides most of the, of the poisoning attributed. It is, it is the deadly one. Aside from the pectin story, in fruit, in nature, you also are taking in equal amounts of ethanol. You get both methanol and ethanol, and so they counteract each other. There's essentially no impact. You're not poisoning yourself when you take I believe you're poisoning yourself when you take it. Okay, it's a difference of one carbon atom. Ethyl alcohol has one carbon atom. Ethyl alcohol has two carbon atoms. Yeah. Human metabolism is geared to using carbon atoms in groups of two or three or more. Now, when you get down to one, methyl alcohol, wood alcohol, has obligatory metabolism to formaldehyde. Formaldehyde, which is embalming fluid, is 5,000 times as potent poison as is sipping alcohol. Is the watchdog of American safety that we power to protect the American public against has repeatedly all of the data that has been Back in 1965, according to G.D. Searle, one of their researchers was working on an ulcer drug when he happened to get some of the substance on his finger, and instinctively, he licked it, noticing its sweet taste. One of the first tests conducted on aspartame was a 52-week study of monkeys to determine the effects of aspartame on primates. Seven monkeys were fed aspartame as milk. Five of those monkeys had grand mal seizures, and one died. I have a, more of a reaction to ethanol, regular alcohol like vodka or scotch. They have a real high resistance to Even though they were fed aspartame with milk, they still came down with seizures and, and, and one died of, I guess, cardiac arrest and overstimulation. Cheryl went back and got another physician, a, a fellow named Dr. Wellington. And this guy sat down and redesigned the monkey study. In that same year, Dr. John Olney found that oral intake of aspartic acid could cause brain tumors in mice. We had this situation where the company uh, initially seemed to be responsive to the concerns, and uh, they actually sent uh, a team of researchers to Dr. Olney's laboratory. And uh, they recreated the study. The serial, re the serial investigators recreated the, the studies that uh, showed these this brain damage in animals. And um, they went back to Cyril, and uh, we waited to hear what Cyril was going to do about this. And the next thing we knew, uh, I would say that they probably went to Dr. Only's lab in mid '71. 
mid-73, they applied to uh, the FDA for a food additive petition to use NutraSweet in the sweetener. So I called the FDA and I said, this doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. Dr. Olney uh, was asked by G.D. Searle to conduct a study because there were some concerns. And it's interesting to note that these concerns came up before a lot of the major testing into the toxicity of aspartame became apparent. But my thinking as an FDA investigator is that G.D. Searle already knew that going into this. Ultimately, FDA, using its good offices, interestingly enough, the major person there, created a meeting between me, Cyril, uh, uh, and General Foods, which was going to be one of the main customers. Yeah. And uh, I said I didn't think that this would ever reach the market. They said, well, they were sure it was going to be approved. And I thought that we were on 180 degrees opposite sides. It turned out that it was approved, but FDA asked them not to market it, and they held it up so that there could be hearings and so forth. In 1974, the FDA approved the limited use of aspartame. Why they were sure it was going to be approved? Said that they they said that it was sure that it was. Well, see, see, when I said I don't think it's going to reach the reach the market. I was being very particular, but I didn't believe it was going to be approved because the evidence didn't show. They said it was. Now, now, one uh, very strange fact in all of that is that I knew that they had the brain damage study from Holman's lab that their own people had done. We talked about the various pieces of evidence that uh, were problems. I finally said, what about the brain damage problem from the animals in Dr. Olney's laboratory that your own people have gone and looked at. And he said, we don't think those are going to be a problem. Well, it turned out they weren't a problem because they didn't give them to the FDA. So, so here they had in their own files a study that raised very serious questions that they did not give to the FDA. That's a violation of law. C.D. Searle did not inform the FDA of this study until after aspartame's approval. This approval came despite the fact that FDA scientists found serious deficiencies in all tests related to genetic damage. And so all these concerns were all rolling around inside FDA, and they were trying to organize them into a policy. And every time they would organize them into a policy at the bench and science level, and they would go up one level to the, where the policy people were, the policy people would overrule them. A month later, Olney and Turner filed a formal objection, stating that they believed aspartame could cause brain damage. But anyway, we, we filed our petition. Dr. Olney filed one and I filed one, attacking um, the approval. And the FDA said, right, there are some factual, uh, informa some factual information we should look into. We'll have a public hearing. Only because some of the investigators working for the Food and Drug Administration, looking at this data, knew that the data did not contain adequate safety. In 1975, due to serious questions over the quality and validity of G.D. Searle's testing of aspartame and other pharmaceuticals, the FDA formed a special task force to examine 11 of the pivotal studies on aspartame. Pivotal studies are those upon which the FDA bases approval or disapproval. Of the 113 studies done on aspartame submitted to the FDA by Searle, 90 were conducted in the early to mid-1970s. Every test the FDA called pivotal was part of this 90. In March of 1976, the FDA completed their 500-page report after finishing their investigation. 
the um, report by the FDA uh, team that inspected it is the most devastating report about research that has probably ever been written about a specific company. And uh, that led to a uh, series of hearings in Congress and came up with a $12 million appropriation to FDA to enforce uh, uh, good laboratory practices. But what happened is there's a policy resolution, but Nutrisweet and, uh, and Cyril got bypassed in the sense that they took this all over here and said, look at this terrible thing that's going on. There were a couple others that were going on at the same time. We've got to do something, and they did something. What they did was going forward, you have to meet these requirements. They didn't do anything about going backwards and saying, look, the stuff you're putting, the stuff you came through here is uh, killing people. Now, the reason they didn't do that at the time, because it happened in, 50, uh, in 75 and 76, is that it was the assumption of everyone in the process that the FDA was going to handle it. So FDA, one of the things FDA did that was so uh, striking and remarkable is that they, uh, knowing that they had this terrible situation on their hands, hired a, uh, a uh, group of pathologists. It's a pathology research group. FDA hired them to review the serial studies, but had serial pay for it. So the result was, here's a company which makes its money by being hired and paid for to do studies. Well, why would it do a study that was going to be critical of NutraSweet? In 1977, the FDA chief counsel, Richard Merrill, recommended to U.S. Attorney Samuel Skinner that a grand jury be set up to investigate G.D. Searle. Well, FDA did attempt to do something. Political part of the FDA, these were the people that really were trying to work and do well. Um, one of the counsel lawyers for the Food and Drug Administration contacted the, the U.S. Attorney in Chicago and to bring an indictment against G.D. Searle for fraud for uh, deletion of records, uh, manipulation of records, um, falsification of records, and a number of other things on the testing that they did on aspartame, and several other products as well. Suddenly, U.S. Attorney Samuel Skinner began preliminary employment discussions with G.D. Searle's law firm, Sidley & Austin. The U.S. Justice Department urged Attorney Samuel Skinner to proceed with the grand jury, pointing out that the statute of limitations on prosecution would soon run out. Samuel Skinner withdrew from the G.D. Searle case, and Assistant U.S. Attorney William Conlon was assigned to the grand jury investigation. Shortly afterwards, Samuel Skinner left his job to work for G.D. Searle's law firm. The assistant he left behind let the statute of limitations run out on the aspartame charges. This assistant, William Conlon, was hired 15 months later by G.D. Searle's law firm, Sidley & Austin. Uh, the common denominator for all of this, unfortunately, is money. Drop the lawsuit against very firm that they were going to um, try for illegal activity. Happened with the U.S. Attorney. That's what happened with, with several people working for the Food and Drug Administration at that fast aspartame. Literally, they were promised great jobs when they finished with that. Uh, it was interesting. The main guy that made the decisions uh, that overruled them uh, in the Bureau of Foods went on to work for the uh, Soft Drink Association. And actually, seven of the key people that made decisions that kept NutraSweet moving through the process ended up working for one or another NutraSweet using industry. 
that's kind of an interesting side effect to the whole thing. I like to do well at things. It, it's important to me that if you're given an assignment that you try to do it the best you can. I'm afraid that some people confuse that with some sort of uh, single-mindedness on my part. Uh, uh, Donald Rumsfeld uh, went into the company after he left Washington, after Ford lost. And uh, that would be uh, in uh, 1977. He's in business, and uh, he was the congressman from there. And then he went to the White House, where he was White House Chief of Staff, and then he became the Secretary of Defense. And he's involved in a whole group of people around Chicago that uh, they're involved in a whole range of things, national security being one of them. He was also a part of the RAND Corporation, one of the major defense think tanks. He's a very, he's a very, um, uh, he's a very uh, uh, bright guy, like in the best and the brightest, you know, the kind of people that fought us Vietnam. These are people who believe that thinking is the primary way that you get through life. Having values, feelings, and so forth, they denigrate. So he took over this company, and it was, in, it was going down the tubes completely. It had FDA investigations. It had, um, it had uh, uh, grand jury investigations. It was losing money. Its stock was down. Uh, a person was hired to come in and explain why the FDA was so down on them and went through all of their records and said, you guys haven't got a chance. This company is, is a mess, a total mess. And he went in with a full team of politicians. He went in with himself, a politician. Uh, he brought his special assistant who was um, uh, a Republican Party operative, worked with the Republican National Committee, brought in a press guy from there, brought in lawyers, and they took on the issue of this company as a political issue. And um, one of the first things that he, not first, but somewhere in that first year, it was late in the year, he called me and said, let's have a meeting. So I went and I met with him, flew into the Madison Hotel, and we met, with, and, we met and we talked. And my point was that the uh, struggle that was going on around NutraSuite was a scientific struggle. We needed to know the scientific answers. And this is before the public employer's inquiry had ruled. We needed to know the answers. So why don't we, the people who were raising all the questions about NutraSuite and the company, together create a, um, a set of protocols that we would agree address the serious questions that needed to be looked at to decide whether or not it should be marketed. So we had this meeting. And, uh, we, and uh, for about six months, his staff and I and, and, and our group negotiated out how we could proceed on this. His own scientists didn't want to do it. For example, at the, at the time that uh, they put their uh, evidence into FDA in, 19, um, in 1973, there were no requirements at FDA to examine effects on the brain from food additives, no requirements whatsoever. So there never was a study done to look at whether or not this affected the brain in, uh, in a neurological sense. The cancer studies were incidental. Those were cancer studies, but these were not brain studies. Cancer studies turned up brain tumors, but they didn't look, for example, at these holes in the brain or mental retardation or uh, lowering the ability of people to think or causing dizziness or blindness or any of those things. None of that was looked at. And uh, we were proposing that we design some studies to look at it. And uh, that was the direction I thought we should go. And I should say that at that point, I was involved with a group of people from uh, the food industry. We had created something called the Food Safety Council. We had 35 major corporations, and it had a board that was half corporate people and half uh, consumer advocates, uh, academic people, environmentalists, and so forth, to look at the standards for food safety. And we had written a whole series of standards for food safety. 
basically what I was saying to Rumsfeld is, why don't you bring your company into the same framework that all these other companies have agreed to be a part of? And, um, and uh, we have very good, very full and frank exchange. The scientists kept jumping up and running around the room and saying, there's no problem, there's no problem, there's no problem. Ultimately, he made the decision not to find out what the facts were, but to move forward on the limited record that they had before them. And I believe it was a decision that was made that said we can, uh, we can accomplish our ends better legally and politically than we can by actually doing the science that determine the outcome of the questions that are being asked. And in my mind, that demonstrated that he was an individual not interested in facts, not interested in the truth, not interested in finding out what the fundamental realities are, but much, much more interested in setting a goal and then, and then by will and force pulling all the resources that he could possibly pull together to achieve that goal, i.e., get NutraSuite on the market and sold. And so Donald Rumsfeld had been all these, in the, all these meetings and known um, all of these potentially harm, very harmful effects of the substance that he then went on and continued to market? Well, I, I, I can't say what Donald Rumsfeld knew or didn't know. Uh, he's not a scientist. He's not very interested in science from what I can tell. More or less, uh, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a fixer. He's, a, he's, a, uh, he's a, um, an operative. He, he, uh, you assign him a job, and he goes and he does it. Uh, now, I'm, I'm sure that as he gets up into the level of defense department, he, he sort of makes up his own jobs and says, I'm going to do these things. But, the, but facts are not all that important to how he proceeds because he's so confident that he knows what the outcome should be that he will look, across, at least in the way he did in nutrition, he looked across the horizon to find all those facts that would support his position and then minimized or denigrated all the facts that didn't support his position. 1980, the Public Board of Inquiry voted unanimously to reject the use of aspartame until additional studies could be done on aspartame's potential to cause brain tumors. The product was, uh, was uh, said not to be, it was ruled by law, it was said you cannot market this product. And then they had to go and do uh, political triage and get in there and manipulate the process. So, I mean, the, the manipulation was so powerful that uh, the first, one of the first things that Ronald Reagan did when he became president was spend the authority of the FDA commissioner to take any action. So he was sworn in in whatever day in January, and the next day he issued a, an executive order eliminating the FDA commissioner's authority to take action. Uh, there was obviously a fear on the part of somebody that the commission was going to do something about NutraSuite or something else that would create difficulty because it took them a while to get a new commission. It took them a little over a month to get a new commission to get the old one out and the new one in. And in that month, the old commissioner was prevented from taking any action by an executive order. And that, that, that takes a high level of political clout to do that. But that political triage on a situation that had gone sour uh, uh, because Rumsfeld had made the decision to... Um, uh, just power his way through and more getting the facts. 1981, the day after Ronald Reagan took office as U.S. President, G.B. Searle reapplied for the approval of aspartame. Several new studies were submitted along with their application. Three of the five FDA scientists responsible for reviewing brain tumor issues advised against the approval of aspartame. The watch of the new FDA commissioner, Arthur Hall Hayes, the panel lawyer assigned a new panel member to eventually achieve a three-to-three -three split over aspartame. July 18, 1981, Arthur Hall Hayes overruled the Public Board of Inquiry to approve aspartame for use. Furthermore, 
the FDA impaneled its own panel to review the public order of inquiry. Three of those people were assigned, review the cancer part of the public order of inquiry, the part that said you can't market it. Those three scientists, every single one of them said, we agree with the public order of inquiry. These are three FDA senior scientists. We agree with the public order of inquiry. They met with the commissioner the night before he announced that he was going to approve NutraSweet and begged him not to approve NutraSweet. Panels just ordinarily do not get written tools. And this should have been enough to have invoked the Ophelini Amendment. Says that if something causes tumors of cancer in experimental animals. 1983, the FDA approved the use of aspartame in carbonated beverages. Under charges of improprieties, Arthur Hull Hayes left the FDA and was hired as a consultant for $1,000 a day by G.D. Searle's public relations firm. NutraSweet or aspartame is the most studied food ingredient ever approved by the FDA, and not just by the FDA, but by more than 70 regulatory bodies around the world. In order to rubber stamp it around the world, you've got to get it approved in, other, in another country. Okay, so let's take Europe. If England were to find out that they wanted an indicted for fraud, if you ever read these reports by the CDC or the FDA Board of Inquiry saying it's not safe or found out, you know, about the that they wanted them indicted, naturally they're not going to approve it. So what they did was Searle, uh, the manufacturer, made a business deal with the professor Paul Turner, who was in the regulatory agency in England, and he approved it without anybody knowing it. Parliament had a big blowout about it, and the story was in The Guardian. I have a copy of it. But they did not rescind the order. There were no studies done in the U.K., and it was uh, rubber stamped then around the world. They could say, well, it was approved in the United States, it was approved in Europe, and then it was approved, you know, in other places. Uh, they used to, they tried to get it approved in Canada, and they couldn't do it. But once they got it approved in Europe, they began to rubber stamp it around the world. The American Dietetic Association, the American Diabetes Association, Medical Association goes all the way down the line. If you were to see and read their journals and publications, see who the sponsors were, the advertising therein, it would make a little bit more sense. But but the Center for Disease Control didn't base investigation and said it was safe. No, Center for Disease uh, never said it was safe either. What they did, here is the Center for Disease Control Investigation, and uh, it's a 146-page document. What it goes into, what was happening to people, goes into cardiac arrest, it goes into, goes into liver problems, it goes into mood alteration, and it goes into death. And it ends up by saying that more neurological studies need to be done. Now, here's what happened. If you go to the Center for Disease Control website, uh, you will see a summary, not this 146-page investigation, but a summary that contradicts this report, saying that it was just mild findings. And I told Dr. 
Mr. Thatcher before he left CEC and became Surgeon General, I said, if you don't take that phony summary off, I will put the whole 146-page investigation on web and let the world see what the Center for Disease Control did. And we do have it on www.eorway.com, like doorway with one O. You can read this entire investigation, and this is the original document. Betty Martini and her organization, Mission Possible, have served as a lighthouse for people who suspect their toxin to be aspartame and wish to learn more. For over 10 years, she has worked tirelessly to inform people of this issue, often challenged by the pharmaceutical and food industry. Mission Possible is the central hub for prevailing knowledge of aspartame. Betty Martini and Mission Possible contribute to Doorway.com, a website that is likely the most frequently cited Internet source on this issue. A substantial find in my investigation was Betty Martini. Her work is an act of charity, and her sources are credible. Of course, as the case histories came in on the Internet, and they were just coming in so fast that one day I got 12,000 case histories. People suffering from aspartame crashed my computer. So uh, four support groups have been set up on the Internet to take care of these people because finally they wondered they'd be going from doctor to doctor. They read that, and uh, they realized why they had MS. They realized about lupus. They realized about diabetes. Many of them called just hysterical, crying, you know, could this be true? Could this be true? But as they got off, their MS symptoms disappeared. People that were blind could see again. Now the current philosophy within the Food and Drug Administration is let's go ahead and we'll approve this food additive or whatever is in here, and we'll let the people prove that it's dangerous. They were calling the uh, FDA. They were calling the hospitals, the doctors. They were calling the CDC. I got one email from the CDC. And they said, you know, people are calling over here. They're hysterical about this. I said, well, whose fault is it? You did the most damning investigation ever done. I said, and then you put this phony summary up there instead of, you know, you should be doing what I'm doing. You know, you are the Center for Disease Control. And we're having to alert the world, you know, because you people sold out. And then you, then you get up with this very terrible equation that says, well, if this thing only harms one in a million people, we'll consider it to be safe. Now, harms, they say kills. If it, if it kills only one in a million people, the FDA considers it to be safe. So what you have then by that, by virtue of that, is you're saying that as far as we're concerned, something that kills between 200 and 300 people a year, we consider safe. That doesn't work for the 200 or 300 people. And so if you're going to do that, you better have a, better have a label somewhere that says safe means we'll kill no more than two or 300 people a year. I, I want to pose that to people because I've had a conversation with some other federal regulators, and I said, you know, with all the technology we have today, with all the advances in medicine and science, people are getting sicker. And has anyone noticed that? Uh, people are, are buying more pharmaceutical drugs to, to cure the very things that these chemical companies started to begin with. So I'm thinking from the womb to the tomb, you're going to be paying money to these pharmaceutical companies, and they're going to be manipulating the politics so you get to consume all of their poisons, all of the toxins, fully untested. And 
we're going to see five or six years from now people coming with new kinds of disease that we never even heard of today. You know, you have to take some responsibility for what you're putting in your mouth. But in this case, they have no way of knowing. You've got the FDA lying to them. They've got CDC, the professional organizations. They go to the doctors. The doctors can't help them because they've been lied to, too. Doctors only know what they're taught. They only believe what they're allowed to believe. So I think it was the year 1917, but I could be wrong. Somewhere in that era, they developed the electrocardiogram. The year before, digestion was the number one cause of death in the United States. The year after the electrocardiogram was invented, cardiac number one cause of death in the United States. So a lot of doctors are still back in on the nutrition issue. They're, they're still way back in the era before anybody allowed them to know anything wrong with it. These things are prolonged effects, and of course if a physician sees it, they see a, a child with a seizure, uh, they're not going to connect it to the MSG or anything because they don't know about this research. They're not familiar with it. Uh, they'll just tell them, all, well, I don't see how that could be related. You know, so do you drink a little brandy? We're about ready to meet Diane Fleming, who was convicted of murdering her husband by methanol poisoning. Her attorney neglected to mention that uh, he was a big her husband was a big consumer of aspartame products, and aspartame breaks down into methanol and could have uh, been the cause of his death rather than her. That's a possibility that was never brought out in court, and therefore she got 50 years in this prison. Um, we're about ready to meet her and hear her side of the story, so stay tuned. He was he kept he kept himself a lot. I don't think a lot of people knew him real well. You know, he didn't want to socialize with people at work or anything. He was very driven at work. Like he never missed work. Even the morning in question when he got up sick and he's saying, Oh, I feel terrible But he went to work because that's what he did. We had weight machines, we had stair climbers, we had treadmills. And he read everything he could find about how to, the right way to do weights. And, you know, like you do sets instead of just doing it. You know, you do so many repetitions and stop for a minute and then do it again like three times, something like that. He was pretty much obsessed with building his body. He didn't want to be fat. Like this. <laughs> he started reading about creatine said that he wanted to try it. He talked about it for a while beforehand. And apparently what it does is it pulls the muscle, but pulls water to the muscles to pump them up more. I'm wondering exactly what it was. Yeah, that, you know, that doesn't sound like a good idea, messing with the fluid balances in your body, pulling water from one place, you know, putting it someplace else. But I think it had something to do with the recovery. He wanted to try that and have some Gatorade. He was trying to decide what to put it in because you could mix it in. They said water or fruit juice, but water probably wouldn't taste too good, and he didn't drink fruit juice. <laughs> so he said, well, maybe Gatorade. He thought he could tolerate that. So we got the 20-ounce the bottles, like a case, 
get to the 24, the 40 flavors. And he kind of tasted, see how it tasted, and then sat in the fridge. Went to the pool with our daughter. Came back. Well, then he played basketball from about 4 until 7 with the guys, mostly some guys in church. Came back and drank that. Even when he came back from playing ball, he wasn't feeling good, but it was very hot. That month, that summer, it got hot early. Even in May and early June, it was really hot. It, and he always felt lousy. I'm short of breath. I can't breathe. He was like, lay down, get up. And, you know, he said he couldn't breathe. So I kept saying, well, want me to, you know, <laughs> what? Well, do you want me to call the doctor again? Do you want, want me to take you to the hospital? What do you want me to do? And this went on for about a half an hour, I guess. And finally he said, okay, you can call the ambulance. Because he, I guess, finally started feeling bad enough, because you know how men are. They won't go or anything. So called the ambulance and showing some signs of maybe being a little bit disoriented, but he was still talking and everything and answering the questions. The paramedic thought kind of what I did, that he was dehydrated from throwing up so much that his electrolytes might have been out of whack because they said, well, we need to get some fluid in you and get some electrolytes. And his breathing was real fast. They, you know, tried to get him to slow his respirations down. They said he was hyperventilating. Thought that was a lot of his problem. Putting the ambulance and transporting. Well, if we'd gotten out of our neighborhood and into. And through the other neighborhood, we were kind of going on the back roads, they turned the lights on, and that kind of scared me. There wasn't traffic. It was, um, so we were crossing over the lake. They turned the lights on. But I called his parents in. After I'd done all the paperwork, you know, they took him on back, but I had to give them the insurance information and everything. They eventually called me back there, and he was still conscious, but he was way incoherent. You know, he wasn't making any sense and he was real like wanting to get up off the gurney and everything and, and finally had to give him some Ativan IV to calm him down because he wouldn't stay, you know. Ativan is um, in the same family as Valium. So I wound up putting him then in the NICU, medical intensive care unit. By the time he got up there, there, he wasn't really conscious anymore, but then they pumped him full of Ativan, too, so it's hard to say. You know, I don't know at what point. <laughs> I'm not on so loft anymore, so <laughs> I don't know at what point he really went into a coma, you know. And it was the I know that night um, I mentioned to him he wore the extended wear lenses and even though you sleep in those things, you know, the, the nurses don't usually like for patients to have them in. I know they make you take them out, 
you said one thing to ask you, and I brought it. They said, well, would you take his lenses out now? And, and he, he kind of responded to that, you know, like whenever I was trying to remove his lenses, which is really hard to do on another person. But during the course of it, you know, when we were going over, you know, trying to figure out everything, I told him that he had been complaining of shortness of breath for a few weeks. About in early May, he started complaining of shortness of breath. First week or two of May, he had had a, a stress echo. I, I finally got him to go to our doctor, and he ordered a stress echo. And early the next morning, the doctor called and said, I got the toxicology back, which they weren't expecting that for a long time. They said it would take couple of days, which sounds kind of bad. And they said they'd gotten it back and they found methanol in his system. Apparently, your body doesn't metabolize methanol, what they were telling me. And then I, I read up on it. As soon as they told me this is what it was, I started reading up on it, too, on the Internet. Your body can't metabolize methanol like it does ethanol. It does, when it tries to, it breaks down into formaldehyde. But the formaldehyde is what is really bad. So what they do is to try to the same enzyme that in your body that works on ethanol is the same enzyme that breaks down ethanol, the kind of alcohol that you drink. So. The treatment is to infuse ethanol intravenously, and then your body, instead of working on the methanol, it kind of leaves it alone and works on the ethanol. That gives them time to try to use dialysis and stuff to get the methanol out of your system. Well, they kept saying they weren't able to get his blood alcohol level up enough. And even though they were taking into consideration that he was a drinker, you know, apparently drinkers, you know, you can handle more alcohol, your body works with it better. So they gave him more than what they would have a non-drinker, but they said they weren't, didn't feel like they were able to get his blood alcohol level up enough. So they, but they were doing the dialysis. Um, started on that the next, very next day, I believe, second day. And they, you know, then they, they decided he was in a coma at some point, I guess, because after the Ativan wore off and they weren't, and he still was unresponsive. They um, did a CAT scan and said that he had suffered a major that he had suffered a major brain bleed, <coughs> brain bleed, and the size and location was such that no one could survive that, even if they were successful in getting the methanol out of his body. But because of the, the bleeding in the brain, <laughs> you know, that wasn't. So they started talking about discontinuing life support.
talked about is I wanted to wait until the next, give it another day. Um, well, I was the one that called the police. <laughs> that morning, that Wednesday morning, when Dr. Akers, he called me before I got there, you know, it was before 7.30. I was getting Megan ready for school. He said, we think this may have been a poisoning, an intentional poisoning, and you need to get the police involved. I'm like, how do I do that, <laughs> you know? So I said, Okay, even though we, that afternoon before decision about removing one, I met the police. They asked me to come back to the house so they could look for possible sources. Specialists have looked at it now and said that the amount of diet drinks that he consumed would easily account for the levels of methanol that he had in his body. I think drinking the creatine just kind of must have pushed it over the edge, you know. Um, adulteration of a substance. The jury gave me 20 years on the adulteration and 30 on the murder, and the judge ran them concurrently. We're all human, you know, people are human, and people like to believe that 12 people on a jury found her guilty, so she must be guilty. No way, you know. I mean, I, I have argued that since day one, and I still do not understand what those people could have possibly heard in those testimonies. You read the transcript. What could they have heard that could possibly have convinced them that Diane Fleming could have killed her husband? I included Diane Fleming in my journey because chronic methanol toxicity from aspartame was not considered at all in her case. Instead, they chose to prosecute her for supposedly pouring a sealed bottle of blue windshield wiper fluid into Gatorade to poison her husband. While there is no way that I can definitively state the precise or exact cause of my own condition, I did drink 6 to 10 cans of diet soda per day for 20 years, and when my body told me to stop, I eventually got better. I can also state that I have spoken to healthcare professionals who agree with me that aspartame is a probable culprit. When I first embarked upon this journey, a part of me was expecting to return empty-handed. What I uncovered, however, was that the current measures of food safety are failing us. So what do we do today? What would you say to the makers and manufacturers of aspartame now if you could? I think they owe me a fortune. They owe me an apology. If they owe me a fortune, I live on Social Security Disability. I have nothing left. I'm very heavily in debt. I am trying very hard to start my own business. But that in itself takes money that I don't have. So I'm doing it bits and pieces as I can. But after that, I mean, just each day was just better and better and better. I'm still finding things that it's in because they don't label it very well. And that is very, very aggravating um, because you have to read each label. And I've got three kids and everything. And I don't have a whole lot of time to go spending a year and a half in the grocery store to do a week's worth of groceries and leave reading every label that I hit my hands on. I've been into chat areas to talk to people with 
multiple sclerosis, and they're very, very hostile to people like me. So I don't doubt it too much. All the while, I've learned that uh, there is a very safe uh, sweetener that's an alternative sugar called Stevia, S-T-E-V-I-A. To this day, the FDA will not allow Stevia to be labeled, advertised, or promoted as a sweetener. You cannot state that. It's just an alternative food supplement. Did you hear about the Fed? No. What about the Fed? They announced another round of the quantitative easing. What does that mean? It means they are going to make large asset purchases via POMO. What does that mean? It means they are going to expand their balance sheet and buy treasuries. What does that mean? It means they are going to print a ton of money. So why do they call it the quantitative easing? Why don't they just call it the printing money? Because the printing money is the last refuge of failed economic empires and banana republics, and the Fed doesn't want to admit this is their only idea. So why do they want to print the money? Because they say we have the deflation, and the deflation is very bad. What is the deflation? The deflation is when prices of the things we buy go down. Isn't that good? Doesn't it mean the people can buy more of the stuff? Yes, but the Fed said this is bad, especially during the recession. So they think that during the recession, when the people have less money to buy the stuff, it is bad that the prices go down? Yes, the Fed would rather have the inflation. So why does the Fed think we have the deflation? Because the CPI said so. But aren't the food prices higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the gas prices higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the health care costs higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't tuition prices higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the taxes higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the subway fares higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the stock prices higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the bond prices higher than a year ago? Yes. So what is deflating right now? The only thing deflating that I can see is the Fed's credibility. Did they have a lot of credibility to start with? No. Why not? Because the Fed has been wrong about every major economic development in the past 20 years. You mean they didn't see the Internet stock bubble? No. In fact, they helped fuel the Internet stock bubble. And they didn't see the housing bubble? No, in fact, they helped cause the housing bubble. And they didn't see the subprime crisis? No, in fact, they told us subprime problems were contained right before the shit hit the fan and the Lehman went bankrupt. So has the Fed ever been right about anything? Let me see if I can think of anything. Nope, nothing. Who runs the Fed? The Fed is run by the Ben Bernanke. Does the Ben Bernanke have a lot of business experience? No, the Ben Bernanke has no business experience. Does the Ben Bernanke have a lot of policy experience? No, the Ben Bernanke has no policy experience. Has the Ben Bernanke ever run in an election? No, the Ben Bernanke has never run in an election. So what qualifies him to run the Fed? I don't know, maybe the fact that he has a nice beard. But my plumber also has a nice beard, and I would not trust him to play God with the economy. No, although when you call the plumber to fix something that is broken, they usually fix it, not break it more. This is true.
true the plumber is clearly smarter than the Ben Bernanke? Well, that is why he became a plumber and not an economist. How does the Fed execute the quantitative easing? They print the money, and then they buy the Treasury bonds. Do they buy the Treasury bonds from the Treasury Department? No, they buy the Treasury bonds from the Goldman Sachs. You must be shitting me. No. So let me get this straight. If I want to buy the Treasury bonds with my money, I can buy them directly from the Treasury. Yes. And if you want to buy the Treasury bonds with your money, you can buy them from the Treasury. Right. But if the Ben Bernanke wants to buy the Treasury bonds using the American people's money, he does not buy them from the Treasury, he buys them from the Goldman Sachs? Exactly. And does the Goldman Sachs give them a good price? Of course not, they are the Goldman Sachs. They make their living ripping off the American people. But how is the Goldman Sachs able to do this? The Fed announces what it is going to buy, and when it is going to buy, before it does the trade. So the Goldman Sachs can front-run the Fed and give them the worst possible price on the Treasury bonds? Yes, exactly. And the Fed is okay with this blatant theft from the American people? Of course, otherwise, the Fed would just buy the Treasury bonds directly from the Treasury Department. Who inside the Fed is responsible for the buying of the Treasury bonds? The buying of the Treasury bonds is conducted by the New York branch of the Federal Reserve. And who is in charge of the New York branch? The head of the New York branch is the William Dudley. And what did the William Dudley do before running the New York Fed? Before running the New York Fed, the William Dudley was a partner at the Goldman Sachs. So the guy in charge of the American people's money when dealing with the Goldman Sachs used to be a partner at the Goldman Sachs? Yes. And nobody has a problem with this? Apparently not. Is this an episode of The Twilight Zone? I don't think so. Are you sure? Pretty sure. So what you are telling me is that the Fed thinks prices are going down when in fact they are going up? Yep. And they think during the recession, with the high unemployment, it is better if the thing people need to buy cost more money. Correct. According to the Ben Bernanke, the inflation will create the jobs and improve the housing market. Has this ever been tried before? Yes, just last year the Fed tried the quantitative easing with $2 trillion. Did that create the jobs? No. Did it help the housing market? Not at all. Did it help anybody at all? Yes, it helped the Goldman Sachs. How much of the money are they printing now? $600 billion. So even though the first $2 trillion did not create the jobs or improve the housing market, the Fed decided to do another $600 billion anyway? Yes. Who put the Ben Bernanke in charge? The Ben Bernanke was first appointed by the President Bush, then he was reappointed by the President Obama. But wasn't the President Obama supposed to bring the change? Yes. How is putting in charge the same fool who has been wrong about everything, the change? Well, under the President Bush, the Ben Bernanke only blew up the American economy. Under the President Obama, he is working on blowing up the entire global economy. That does not sound like the change we can believe in. Definitely not. Who else supports the Ben Bernanke? Most economists around the world think the quantitative easing is very dangerous. Does anyone think it is a good idea? Yes, the people at the Goldman Sachs. Is this some kind of nightmare? No, it is very real. I want to bang my head against the wall. You should not do that. Why not? Because the health care is too expensive. But didn't the President Obama fix that? No. But that is the subject of a whole other video. Goodbye. Food prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%.
What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Melody Suderstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival. I'm here with my co-host, Alfred Addis, to bring you our opinion and commentary on today's economic and political events for Tuesday, January 13th, 2015. Good afternoon, Al. Hello, Melody. Oh, another day. True. (laughs) Good to be here. Brilliant. Better to be here than not be here. Yeah, I agree with that. Don't you agree with that? I agree finally, with that. It might be, it might be an improvement to be someplace else. I'm wondering if we could broadcast from Tahiti or at least Hawaii or something <laughs> like that. On. I don't know. <laughs> we but, can work uh, on that. This is okay. Well, I just want to remi- uh, tell the listeners that tomorrow we will have Greg Hunter from USA Watchdog joining us for the, the program tomorrow. Wendy Wilson, um, she was rescheduled for Thursday for the first segment of the program. So Greg Hunter tomorrow and uh, Wendy Wilson for Thursday. And it's Alfred and myself today. And gold today, it was up, you know, 1245 on the uh, high today. And uh, But she's looking at 1232. 1232 down $2 today for gold. Silver up 44 cents. Finally, woo-hoo, over 17, 17.15. Seventeen dollars and fifteen cents. Platinum, twelve hundred and forty-four. Eh, it's been up and down today at a high of twelve fifty-three. You know that pulled off uh, the high right now, showing unchanged. But uh, we're looking at twelve forty-four and palladium up five at eight hundred and eighteen dollars. The USDX today, of course, was trading stronger, point two three to the upside, ninety-two twenty-seven. Crude oil up a few cents, point thirty-eight at forty-six. 45 paper markets today. Um, the Dow was up uh, triple digits early morning trade, and it slid, and uh, looks like it's down 
27 points at 17,613. You know, the NASDAQ down three points, 4661, S&P about the same, 2023. Ten years just keeps on dropping, uh, 0.189%, 0.189%, down 0.02 for the 10-year yield today. So, Al, yes. remember Y2K? That was before my time, was but I've, I've read touched? a book Have about it. Have you read it. about it? I, I've read a book about it, so I'm okay. a little bit familiar. Well, you know, there's looking to another this year. I don't think you'd call it Y2K. No. Maybe okay. Y2015K. I don't know. But it's a leap second. Leap second that threatens to break the Internet. And this is going to happen this summer. And it could threaten to wreak havoc across the Internet. What's interesting, there was already one of these leap seconds. And uh, last week, the International Earth Rotation and Reference Systems Service declared that we're all living about a second ahead of where we should be. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) The Earth's Rotation. That's scary, Melody. Isn't that a whole thing? The Earth's rotation has slowed, and we'll need an extra second for the planet to catch up. So we're, you know, hey, this is time travel. The International Earth Rotation and Reference Systems Service announced that the leap second will take place on June 30th. And the problem is that the computer software that controls much of the web um, the article says it doesn't play nicely with leap seconds. The previous leap second, which took place in 2012, brought down Reddit, Yelp, LinkedIn, Foursquare, and a lot of other ones. Um, Qantas, Entire Computer System went down for hours, of course, forcing employees to check in passengers by hand, the old-fashioned way. And uh, the code for most web apps is based on Unix software that traces its roots to 1970, two years before leap seconds ever existed. So How did we get along without leap seconds prior to 1970. Don't know. You know, we might be. It may not be that we're just going to be a second off. We may be. We may be 10 seconds altogether, or 20 seconds, or even half a minute. Imagine that, Melody. We might be a half a minute further into the future than we should be. Or is it? are we a half minute further into the past than we should be? Which does it go? Which is it going? <laughs> tomato, tomato. Uh, when leap seconds happen, um, the IERS tells computers that the last minute of that day will have 61 seconds. And, of course, this makes the software so... <laughs> Then we'll be able to catch up on our sleep, won't we? Yeah, whole second. How about that? Yeah, if you're asleep at midnight, <laughs> you'll be able to catch up on your sleep a little bit thanks to the uh, leap second, the now, leap second. Google developed what it calls one of its coolest workarounds around a 25, 2005 leap second made some of its computer systems to stop accepting new commands. To avoid the leap second issue, Google gradually adds a couple of milliseconds to its server's clock throughout the day when a leap second is to occur, just enough to stave off any type of disaster by the end of the day. 
but not enough to trip any alarm bells when the adjustments are made. The bad news is that leap seconds continue to disrupt web services even after Google tells the world how to fix it. So a whole second. I mean, I mean, to me, this is a sign. I mean, really? You know, they talk about flag swans. You know, you got the flag swan event. The black. I think what we're really getting into is we have to keep our eyes peeled for a Daffy Duck event. All right? He's kind of a black duck rather than a black swan, if you remember. Some of this is just ridiculous. I mean, uh, but I mean, the world is going to come to an end because there's an extra second someplace. I wouldn't care. It doesn't bother me if we never correct this leap second thing. I don't mind losing a second every couple of years or gaining a second. I don't care which way it goes. Um, I don't know. You know, this is just bizarre. We're going to have a black daffy duck event coming up, and the world will come to an end because there was a leap second. A leap second. But there have been 25 leap seconds, 25 of them, since they were introduced in 1972. Earthquakes and volcanic eruptions have a tendency to slow down the Earth's rotation, as do gravitational forces from the moon and other celestial bodies. You know, another thing we could do is we could all face east, get up in the morning at the same time, Everybody around the world at the same time, we face east exactly at 8 a.m. in the morning. It might be different times, different places. We all face east, and we all blow in that direction, if you get my – and we would, by, by all blowing at the same time, we might make the earth move. Get my – can you see my idea here, Millie? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Even if there was a leap second every year, and there isn't, the Earth would only be 16 minutes behind schedule in the year. As compared to what? In the year 3,015. Hmm. I don't think I'm going to be here for that, probably. Yeah. I'm not expecting. 3,015, that's only, what, 1,000 years from now? Yeah. Uh, 16 minutes in a thousand years. I don't know. I don't think I'm not going to get too concerned about this, and I don't think it'll be any bigger than Y2K. Well, I don't either. But you know what? It, it's funny because when I saw this, I'm thinking, you know, do do seconds really mean that much? And if the whole computer system is still based on something so silly to us. It's It's just another sign of how fragile the systems, and the bigger and bigger they become, the more complex they become to where something as simple as getting off a second, which kind of just blows my mind how you get off a second anyway. um, But is it a full second melody, or is it only nine-tenths of a second? Or maybe it's it's It's, 1.1 and one-tenth. It's... Uh, it's one uh, of a second. There is exactly one second. It's one second mm. from Jupiter's Sirius left every 48 seconds to the millimeter. Well, Melody, we are now completely off in a world that I don't, I don't want to say that I understand the world that I've been inhabiting <laughs> up until now, but I'm definitely, this is, this is over, this is out of my depth. Um, Let's move on to EU countries uh, before we head into the break. Um, I found this interesting today. Um, there's a proposed 315 billion euro, which is about 371 billion dollars European Union investment plan 
Um, now, it says the top official, um, European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker, um, said he wants member states to contribute more money to get the contingent flagging, the continent flagging economy back on the upswing. The fund is meant to reduce the risks of investment for private investors and encourage them to spend on strategic projects like broadband, internet, energy networks, and small companies. Uh, he, uh, Junker told EU legislators he would like individual countries to participate in great numbers by giving uh, into this investment plan by financing it. The commission is urging a fast-track legal approval of the fund so it can launch in June to help kickstart growth and create jobs to encourage countries to take part in the plan. Uh, Junker's commission, which supervises EU member budget plans, said it would take a favorable position on any contributions when it assessed the public finances of participating nations. So here's another thing. You know, taxpayers, come and give us your money. Um, put it into this investment fund so we can um, take more of your money. And uh, Suffer the little taxpayers to mm -hmm. come unto me with their taxes. That's the word from the government. Uh, bring us your tax, your taxes, your savings, your huddled masses yearning to get back up into the middle class. And we'll call it an investment fund. That's exactly right. Backed by your government. Backed by the European Commission. Backed by, ultimately, the, the people. The people. Won't get any benefit out of this more than likely. Mm -mm. But they will get the costs. Um what can you say? For me, you know, again, is this a black swan event? Is this a daffy duck event? It's the sort of thing where it appears to be so irrational that it's kind of funny. It's probably not funny at all. But it's, <laughs> it's like watching Yosemite Sam. And there are a lot of people who probably don't even remember who Yosemite Sam is, but he was in the he was one of the he was one of the bad guys in the Bugs Bunny cartoons back in the day. And you can just see him tiptoeing into the room full of explosives and he lights a match or whatever. That's where our government is right now. It's kinda of like a cartoon. Um, there may be a big explosion, everybody's gonna be damaged by this thing, but I don't know what to make of it sometimes. It's evidence some of these stories are just, they seem foolish. And if they are as foolish as they seem, it's not evidence of comedy, it's evidence of desperation. Right? The people are saying, well, let's try this. we got to do something. Let's do this. And somebody says, I don't think that. Wow, yeah, but we've got to kick the can down the road a little further. We might be able to buy another month or two or even six months, and we can do this, and who knows? We buy enough time, maybe we'll find something that actually makes some sense. Or we might get lucky. And that's the way the economies around the world seem to be functioning to some degree. Now, they're still intact, I get that, but, you know, you have to wonder how long can this continue. Well, we see so many of these leaves in the breeze, and it just confirms and supports what we talk about on the program, the truth that we bring to the listeners compared to all the mainstream media falsehoods and the lies that come out of Washington and out of Wall Street. 
And uh, certainly there's no fundamentals on Wall Street. The only fundamentals for Wall Street, those paper investments, is Janet Yellen, the Federal Reserve, and Ben Bernanke before her, and all those prior to them. That is what is holding up uh, Wall Street. And, you know, once you see all that money in the European Union, all the trillions of dollars that they're going to create and put into their markets, you'll probably see money pull out of our markets and go there. Because they'll they'll be the same fundamentals supporting those markets as what has supported ours for the last year. So it's and the only ones that are getting wealthier are those that control it. Are the those that are associated with corporations, major corporations? And they're all part of the game. They're all part of the elite. They're 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 all they're lapdogs. They're the lapdogs of the game. But they're certainly a beneficiary of the way the game is being played right now. Our interest rates are so low that banks are reluctant to lend to anyone other than the highest creditors. And I know we have subprime mortgages and subprime auto buying, and that that argues against what I'm trying to communicate. But just the same, when the interest rates drop to irrationally low levels, banks can't make money by lending, right? The risk that Joe Sixpack is out there and he wants to borrow a quarter million dollars for a house and the banks are looking at him and say, you know, we're not making enough money off this loan to compensate for the risk that Joe's going to be put out of work and we're going to lose money on this loan. And therefore the banks say, I know what we'll do. We'll only loan to the big corporations that are sure to repay the debt. When the interest rate is so low, that you can't make a decent return. The only thing the banks can do or the most rational thing they can do is lend to the big corporations, and they've been doing that over a period of years now. And the big corporations said, thank you very much. They're borrowing money that the average American can't access. They have interest rates that are extremely low, and they are using the money or they've used the money to buy their own stock back, for example. Well, if you're associated with those major corporations, you can get rich. But if you're down here living in the middle class or anywhere close to it, and you'd like to buy a house or a car or whatever, it was a different situation. Again, we've shifted to some degree to subprime, back to subprime mortgages and subprime auto loans. But part of the reason that there's income inequality in this country is, from my perspective, because the Federal Reserve has dropped the interest rate down close to zero, and therefore they primarily only lend to major corporations, and therefore the only people that are making money are those people that are in or close to these major corporations. And to say the only people, that's an exaggeration, of course, but but I think you understand what I'm trying to say. Low interest rates, it's great for Wall Street, doesn't really help uh, Main Street at all. Let's take a break, Melody, and... We've got a couple of commercials to, for folks to listen to and enjoy. And Melody and I will be back on Financial Survival in just a couple of minutes. Please stay tuned.
pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663 or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663 or thepowerherbs.com. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe, all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Does the cost and risk of conventional health care concern you? Wouldn't you prefer inexpensive solutions to health problems rather than disease management? If so, tune into Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson every Tuesday and Thursday evening, 7 p.m. on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, where your health care options just became endless. Financial Survival, brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver at 1-800-375-4188. What's next, Melody? Two specials today, and I think the listeners have heard them before. We're going to continue because, you know, folks, $75 over a Gold Eagle coin. You can't go wrong when you're purchasing Men's State 61 $20 gold pieces, either the Saint or the Liberty at $1,375. And, of course, we're going to have some 90% silver quarters and dimes, $25 face value mixture, quarters and dimes, $370, and that includes your shipping costs. So give us a call at 1-800-375-4188. 90% silver is great. It's an inexpensive way to buy your silver in an extreme emergency. You're still able able to take those coins to the store and spend them or barter them if you had to. And people say, well, 
people are too dumb. They're not going to know how to trade in gold and silver when difficult times come. And I disagree. I can remember in the 70s and the gas lines when we had the uh, oil embargoes and everything going on. Gasoline station, if you pay with pre-65 coinage, you'll receive 10 20% discount. This last time, Oregon, there was places that clients told me along the same venue where they would offer discounts. And if you paid in that type of coinage, um, maybe you got free gas or discounts or so forth. So if you're a businessman or a businesswoman, you adapt to whatever is happening in order to, you know, continue or guess what? You don't get to feed your children. So you close your doors. So people are smart enough and they'll adapt to how they have to very quickly. And those that don't, well, they will close their doors and go hungry and die. So now they'll pick up on this quick enough if the dollar. Some will not all. That's what this comes down. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. They've got the idea that gold is better than paper, and they'll learn this, and it won't take them long. We'll ever. You're going to get into debates, and somebody says, you know, a silver dollar should be enough to pay for my groceries, and the other guy's going to say, no, I have to have at least two silver dollars to pay for that amount of groceries, and you wind up settling for one silver dollar and. I don't know, some junk silver, you know, half a dollar's worth of junk silver. Hard to say how this is going to go. There will be debates. It will be, you know, it will be a certain amount of bartering. But you got to have something to barter. If the world breaks down into a – if the dollar does collapse or falls dramatically, significantly, then you're going to tend to move into something that's a little more like barter, certainly something that relies on – silver and gold in private markets, you'll move in that direction, and at least you have something to barter. You don't have any gold or silver. In a worst-case scenario, in the paper markets, the paper currency disappears. You you can perhaps barter on the basis of your good looks if that's what you think will work, but it probably won't work all that well. And you might have to go to jail if you're caught. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, what we're talking about, what we're talking about is the possibility that we're headed into difficult economic times. And that's what we talk about as a general rule on this program. And we do that not just to beat a dead horse, but to alert people to the idea that we seem to be getting closer and closer to a possible, a possibly difficult situation. We see reports, and virtually everyone in the audience has heard it, where the, 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 uh, the Treasury Department is taking bids on some sort of survival kits for some of its employees that go out and monitor banks to see, audit banks to see if they are functioning properly and they've got the right amount of capital to back them up and whatever. And they include a thermal blanket, for God's sake, right? Which means they think these guys may go out on a job. They're going to the First National Bank of Dallas. They're not going to the First National Bank of Podunk, Nebraska. That's not what they're worried about. They're talking about people are going to banks in major cities and the possibility of some sort of an economic or political 
problem that's so severe that these people need water purification tablets and a thermal blanket. They're betting that these people aren't going to make it home for dinner. That's not my bet. That's a bet that's coming out of the United States Treasury Department. Now, I don't know if the people have lost their minds or not, but it's one of those things you can't help but look at and think, if you assume that these people have any clue to what they're doing, unless you think they're all just crazy and incompetent, which I I don't think that's true. I think they're caught in a difficult position, but they may not be able to think their way through. But I don't think they're incompetent. They're doing maybe the best they can under the circumstances, at least best for them, best for somebody. But if they think there's going to be a moment when bank examiners need water purification tablets and a thermal blanket that can be reused, among other things, in this little survival kit that they're taking bids for, it indicates that there are people in positions of power that actually agree with what we're talking about in this program. This isn't just doom and gloom and fear-mongering and the rest of that. It's as we are attempting to make credible warnings and present credible reasons why we may be on the verge of a serious problem. Now, is the problem going to take place? I don't know. Is it going to take place this week? I don't know. Going to take next week, next month, next year? I don't know when it's going to happen, and neither does anyone else. But we keep seeing evidence, and we see no evidence to the contrary other than whatever cheerleading you can you can get out of President Obama and the Congress and the Senate. And they might tell us, oh, everything's great, everything's going along, the recovery is well on its way, America's prospering, and the rest of it. And we're just trying to say, no, that doesn't appear to be true. There is evidence to the contrary. I don't know where we're going precisely. I don't know how fast we're going to get there. But the weight of the evidence is you'd better get ready. You should be prepared as best you can. We may see a difficult time in the near future. And if you agree with that assessment, we're trying to give you evidence as well, look at this, look at this, look at this. If it looks reasonable to you, then you have to act accordingly or ignore it if you want. You can ignore that information if you want. But if the moment comes, you know, you're going to wish that, oh, my gosh, I shouldn't have ignored that information. I should have done something. I should have acted when I had a chance. It's like having a life protect, life preserver on the Titanic. You know, given that everyone knows the Titanic can't possibly sink, what do we need life preservers for? It's just foolishness. It's like having a buggy whip on your automobile. We don't need that. Well, as it turns out, those life preservers may have made the difference between some people surviving and some people not surviving. We're in a similar position right now. Maybe we're on the Titanic. Maybe we're not on the Titanic. But it's not a bad idea to keep a life preserver pretty close at hand. Not a bad idea. Might not need it. Maybe we're going to get all the way to New York City. Won't be any problems. On the other hand, we are going through an ocean that is, there's a lot of icebergs out here. And maybe we can negotiate our way through them, and maybe we can't. We'll see. And it really, you're right, we're on the ocean. There's a lot of icebergs, but look who built the Titanic. Uh, look how reckless they were in driving 
and, and motoring the Titanic, and that is truly, you know, a big part of why the Titanic went down. So much like our systems, our financial systems, um, you know, it's those that are driving, it's those are the regulations, it's those that are that have allowed the, the, the corruptness, the, the banking system, the the elite, the Illuminati. Uh, you know, they, they're the ones Such that are behind this. And you know that has uh, destroyed the system, and it, it is a matter of time until it goes down. You know, one of the things that I begin to appreciate more and more as time goes on is we have people in positions of power where they're not because they are necessarily competent. They are there because they are particularly aggressive. Right? We have alpha males that manage to negotiate. They see the power, they see the office, they see the money that can be made. They want that office. And that's human nature. But there are some offices right now that have so much power that you can't afford to put someone in charge just because he's the toughest SOB on the block. There are matters that have to be dealt with in a way that is intelligent and ethical and responsible to the people, and what we have are sometimes psychopaths achieving positions of power, and they're just going to do something. We can admire them in many instances, say these are men of action, these are men of, of will and force and a bunch of other things, but the fact is that's a poor qualification for achieving a position like chairman of the, uh, chairman of the board for the Federal Reserve or President of the United States, or Speaker of the House, or whatever. We have to sit back and not just, and it's part of our nature. We want the most aggressive SOB we can find to be the leader, to exercise the power. And I'm not convinced that that's a good idea. I think we really need to sit back and say, wait a second. Maybe we need somebody who really understands what's going on here. Maybe we need someone who's not pushing to be the next chairman of the board of the Federal Reserve. Perhaps that's what we need, but that's not what we're going to get. I understand that. So until until these guys are done and they ruin and continue to ruin the system, I agree. Until it collapses, uh, there's hey, we're past the point of uh, of returning to a system that uh, is fair to all. That's done. It's it's over with. So you know we're on this path. There's the day of reckoning that is coming, and I mean that's all there is to it. So people have a choice. They have options, and then their their choices and their options is well, I go down with the ship, or I begin to prepare, and I position right, myself I... to protect myself in many different ways that best suits me. And we are here to help them um, do that when it comes to their finances. And, and it, it's, you know, it's, that's where we're at. I mean, we can wish that we'd have the right politicians. We can, you know, support the few, the one or two that might be in there. But what are they going to do? They're going to fight everybody else? I don't think so. You know, they, they can, you know, I mean, and how many of them, act, you hear them talk the talk, but how many of them truly walk it? Very few. And, um, I mean, look at, I mean, even since Ron Paul left, I mean, look at the difference. I mean, you don't hear anybody questioning or, or having a, 
serious discussion on our on our finances. On this, this, I mean, nobody even talks about the budget anymore. Nobody even talks about the debt ceiling. Nobody even talks that we're eighteen trillion dollars and counting. And two hundred trillion, depending on who you're talking about, when you add all those other things onto the, onto our debt, it's like doesn't anybody get it? Yeah, they get it, but there's nothing they can do about it. So why bother? So they're there in order to take us down this little path, you know, until the day of reckoning appears. So people have a choice. They can wait. They can procrastinate. Uh, they can, you know, think that they're going to be sitting on the fence post, thinking that they can you know, make last-minute decisions to, to protect themselves. But I, I'm with everybody else in the camp that I think it will happen very quickly. Yeah, you're going to see gold fluctuate between 1200 1300 It's going to go up, it's going to go down, it's going to go up, it's going to go down. You might have the stocks. But when that black swan, or whatever you want to call it, when that happens, it will happen so quick. And you're going to see gold rise. And you're going to see people pull their funds, and they'll try to get it into the market, and there won't be any gold or silver for them. And, and that's how it's going to happen. Funds out of the bank. And they'll be lucky if they get their funds out. I mean, if they don't move now, we've already, we were talking yesterday about the bail-ins and legalizing the idea that the banks, if they're in a bind, can simply take over the funds that have been deposited by their depositors. And you've deposited $100,000 in the bank. And you thought it was yours, and they say, no, no, that's not your money anymore. That's our money. And that's just it. There isn't going to be a legal struggle over this. They're just going to say, we're taking your money. Now, if you thought to yourself, well, we'll just pull that 100000 out of the bank, and we'll buy ourselves some gold when times get difficult. If times get difficult and they take your $100,000, you're not only not going to have that hundred grand, you're not going to have the gold you had anticipated purchasing. Huh? When is it, is it going to happen? Don't know. When is it going to happen? Don't know. Could it happen? Absolutely. And insofar as they, this is another one. We're talking about how, how foolish, how silly it seems that bank examiners would have some sort of a survival kit to bring along with them when they go to examine whatever's going on in some, some local bank. That seems foolish. Well, I had another one that was in mind and it skipped, skipped off while, I'm, while I started to explain that. We were having a, uh, a senior moment here, Melody, and I forgot. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I haven't had any of those yet. Yeah. more than it, uh, You I'm haven't gonna... admitted any. You haven't admitted any yet. I admit them when I have them, Melody. But what I do know as far as a senior, we're going to be heading into a senior segment. Break. Senior break. A senior break. A senior break here in the next thirty seconds. But uh, we're gonna we have an email in uh, from Ivan regarding uh, the uh, investigator. Uh, what happened in police? I guess there was a, a suicide, and we'll talk about his question when we get back uh, right after the commercial. All right. We will find more. We will learn more about a possible suicide in France. Mm-hmm. All right. We'll talk about it when we get back. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedars from On Financial Survival. We'll be back in a moment. Please stay tuned.
pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in an untested vaccine hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate in those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand, have a plan, have peace, and request your pandemic kit today. Or take your chances with the bad boys. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. Yes. Gold and silver coin needs at 1-800-375-4188. What's next, Melody? Well, we got this email in about the police chief uh, uh, that was investigating the Paris attack uh, committed suicide. And this is from a website. uh, This is from Ivan. And uh, this website is stating that they think that the, this whole thing in Paris was staged. I think that remains to be seen. However, we learned that the commissioner had committed suicide uh, with a service weapon, uh, information confirmed by his superiors. It is unknown at this time the reasons for his actions. Uh, the commissioner, Helric Fridou, is 45 years old. He began his career in 1997 as a police officer at the regional office of the Judicial Police of Versailles. Before returning to Limoges, he was deputy director of the Regional Police Service since 2012. His father was a former police officer. His mother was a nurse. Um, He was single and had no children. And this website feels that he was probably murdered since he was doing the investigation, and they did not find any documentation that he was assembling. So I think it's a suicide, or at least for the moment, that's the official story. That's the official story. And maybe, well, maybe he ate all that documentation before he shot himself. Maybe. You think about that? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. What does it all mean? You know, you get so many stories. It's very difficult to believe anything. 
them. It's difficult to believe what you receive over the Internet. It's interesting. It's well done. There was one writer, I can't think of her name. I'm not even sure if it's a female. But she wrote for, she was associated with a Russian publication, if I recall correctly. And brilliant writer. Mm-hmm. And the first time, first time I saw her work, I went, oh, my gosh. Sachi. Sorcha. Oh, that's his Sorcha Fall. Yeah. Isn't that it? Yeah. That's Sorcha Fall. Mm-hmm. I think that was who it was. I don't know if it's a man or female or if it's a pseudonym for half a dozen people that are writing together as a group. I don't know what it was, but it was always well done. Everything I saw was always well done. And at first I was very believable. Oh my gosh, this was very, yeah, I was convinced. Now over time I realized this is just hoax. That's all she's producing, she, he, whatever. So what do you believe? And what you perhaps have to do is you have to learn to use your own eyes, your own ears, and you're going to have to discern for yourself whether or not Am I getting am I getting some truth, or am I being deceived? You know, and you're going to have to make you're going to have to take responsibility for making that determination. And most people won't don't want to. They want you know someone else to tell them what to think. But we are living in a world when there's so many people telling you what to think. In the end, it's going to force you to think for yourself, or just shut down, go in a hole someplace where. You know, you don't have to listen to anyone, and no one asks you to make a decision. But strange times. Strange times. You know, again, when when I was a boy, a young man, there was a kind of consensus in this country. And the consensus may have been wrong. I'm not arguing that consensus was true. But at that time, I had a lot of confidence that whatever ideas I had were pretty much mainstream. I was going along with everybody else, and it gives you a certain amount of confidence. I don't have that right now. You know, if you've got any ideas that you hold with any measure of passion or sincerity, you've got to be wondering, am I right? Am I wrong? It's up to you and me. Make up our own minds. What else, Melody? Well, let's go into retail. There's a lot of stores that are closing. Yep. Uh, a lot of their retail shops across this country. Uh, this week, to the nation's giant retailers, announced uh, uh, to employees and shoppers uh, the closing of dozens of stores. Does that sound like a great economy to you, Al? No. Macy's is closing 14 of its 79 or 790 stores. That's not a big number. It's only 1.7% of its stores. But Macy's is closing 14 stores. J.C. Penney is closing 39 of its 1,100 stores and laying off 2,250 workers. Again, not exactly a big deal. It's only about 3.5% of its stores. And But the article continues, says that's just the beginning of the retail earthquake hitting America. I believe we're on the verge of a number of business failures of specialty retailers as well as some national general retailers, which in turn will have a domino effect on those dealing with the retail industry said bankruptcy ex- expert uh, Chuck Tattlebaum, um, because the changes in buying habits of U.S. consumers as a result of a continuing hesitancy to spend. The 2014 holiday season was not sufficiently successful for many retailers that have either overexpanded 
fell out of favor or had insufficient capital and merchandise. Here's an early report. You know, I've talked about it a little earlier. We're wondering, when do we get a report on what really happened over the Christmas retail season? This is the big season for a lot of retailers. They make 70 80% of their money in that, in that holiday season. And if this has been a bad holiday season, it does not bode well for the economy. We're seeing a preliminary, a preliminary report here that suggests Christmas wasn't that, wasn't that great. They go on, they talk Sears, around for 122 years, closing 235 underperforming stores. Sears and Kmart lost $296 million in 2014. Um, during 2014, Sears Holding closed about 200 of the Sears uh, and Kmart stores, and it's not clear. I think that means they closed 200 during 2014, and they anticipate closing another 225 in uh, in uh, 2015. The, delay, the article isn't clear, but a couple hundred Sears stores are closing or will be have already closed, and perhaps another couple hundred maybe closed in the near future. Sea Wonder, a property retailer, is going out of business. Wet Seals closing 338 retail stores. Um, uh, let's see. In the, uh, Aeropostale, uh, Aeropostale um, has closed 75 stores during the holiday season. Well, it should have been. I mean, you should have at least, this is when you might make some money. You ought to hang on at least during the holiday season. Now they said they were out of here. They effectively closed down. They'll close another 50 to 75 stores in 2015. Radio Shack closed 175 locations in 2014, and they are attempting to close another 1,100 stores. That's almost 1,300 stores total in 2014 and perhaps 2015, an average of about, of about 25 stores per state. Is Radio Shack come going completely out of business mode? Well, they're close to bankruptcy, so whether they reorganize and keep what they have, they just never really kept up. I always liked Radio Shack, but they just haven't kept up with, you know, know, it's hard to compete with Best Buy. And, uh, you know, I I don't think they've ever found their little niche uh, to some degree, but... I agree with that, and uh, it, it, you know, one way or another, it failed. But you know what? But you know what's interesting too, and then we'll move on, and we can talk about uh, the home builders uh, uh, drop. How much can you blame? You know, I watch CNBC, and yeah, I don't pay much attention to what they say, but you know, you follow. You have to know what your enemy's doing. So I watch CNBC. I watch some of the other financial news programs, and you know, they, they build up these. You know, like Amazon and some of these, these other online sellers of products, and they don't address J.C. Penney's in the same way. They don't address Sears in the same manner. And you have a lot of these little shops like uh, Wet Seal and some of these other ones that are in that retail shopping mall venue. So you know, when these when the media talks poorly and tries and you have to admit, you know, you have these financial news programs that push towards online selling and so forth. They truly are damaging, you know, a lot of your mom and pop shops in your local communities and so forth. And uh, you know, I, part of it's doing hard business, to know what, it's hard to know if the, these these financial programs are damaging 
or they're simply reporting Pardon. the news. The world is shifting to online buying. Um, the article we're reading from online shopping is most often cited as a major problem for brick-and-mortar retail stores. Online sales now account for about 13% of all retail sales. Well, now I think they kind of do promote, you know, the certain things because that's where they make their money, though, too. I mean, certainly they're not going to admit it, and certainly you can't prove it. But, uh, I mean, when you really look at who they have on their little talking heads on a daily basis, it's all those, you know, they're only going to promote certain ones and so forth. Well, I mean, so when was the last time you saw the owner of Wet Seal on there, and, you know? Well, so my, anyway. the, other, the other interpretation of this is that they feel a vested interest Mm -hmm. to talk about whatever is going on that's positive in the economy. And if Amazon is what's positive in the economy, they'll talk about Amazon, but they're not going to talk about things that are negative in the economy, like Radio Shack. And I understand that. It's responsible on one level. It's deceptive, on, in, in, on technically deceptive at the same time. It is a kind of responsible cheerleading in that they're trying to keep people's morale up. Now, we're on this program, and we're not trying to keep your morale up. We're going in the other direction. We're saying, look, we got a problem at Radio Shack and Aeropostal and Wet Seal and Sears and so on. We're not doing this, again, to try to just – it's not just fear-mongering. We're trying to give you the other side that you're not hearing from the mainstream media. We're not just pumping sunshine. We are trying – talk about the problems that are there, not simply to talk about problems, not simply to be negative, but to, to, to place this in perspective where people can say, wait a second, there is a problem here. Maybe we need to get prepared for that problem. All right? Maybe we can't just afford. As important as it is to maintain public confidence in the economy, it's also important to be objective. And that objectivity just might save you in a worst-case scenario. If you're going to just cheer, yay, yay, everything's going great, if you're going to do that, you may be headed for a big surprise. And if you're not prepared for that surprise, you know, then that's what we're trying to do. Get ready. Get, pre get, get prepared or at least make up your mind if you think that surprise is likely coming. Here's another one from the Associated Press. U.S. stocks decline as energy stocks slump. Home builders drop. Um, New York, U.S. stocks declined early afternoon Tuesday uh, as energy stocks slumped again. Home builders dropped after builder KB Homes said that demand for homes was weak. All we're talking about here is we've got a domino effect going on. People are saying, yay, yay, energy is down, the price of gasoline is down. Yeah, but that means the energy sector is down as an investment in the stock market. It's one of the biggest, if not the biggest, sector in the stock market. It's going to adversely impact the stock market. It's going to adversely impact profits for a number of corporations. It's going to perhaps trigger some derivatives that are going to be allegedly, what, $300 billion? Trillion trillion here in the United States um, associated with the oil business and fracking and so on. Uh, the point is, once again, we are, you know, we're on the verge of something here. 
And what's interesting is with this oil drop, you have Iran's Rouhani says that countries that are behind the oil price drop yep. are going to suffer. Yeah, this is from Reuters. And they're just uh, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani said on Tuesday that countries behind the fall of global oil prices would regret their decision and warned that Saudi Arabia and Kuwait would suffer alongside of Iran from the price drop. Now, he goes on, he says, if Iran suffers from the drop in oil prices, know that other oil-producing countries, such as Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, will suffer more than Iran. This is the president of Iran. So what crosses my mind is, will Iran instigate some form of violence against the Saudis or Kuwait? Assassinations, bombings, support for dissidents within the uh, Saudi Arabia or Kuwait? Will the fall in oil prices be stopped by economic forces of supply and demand? Or will they be stopped by military forces of bang-bang and kaboom? The truth is that some oil-producing nations produce nothing but crude oil. Their national revenues could be down as much as 70%. That fall in revenues is not merely painful for people in those countries, but also exposes the governments of those countries to internal strife, chaos, and possible revolution. They aren't going to like that. The oil-producing nations that are being damaged by the fall in the price of crude oil must be furious and frightened and likely to blame nations like Saudi Arabia and Kuwait that are deemed responsible for the price fall. So I'm wondering, can we expect some oil-producing nations to take action, physical or economic vengeance, against the Saudis and the Kuwaitis? No longer the price, uh, excuse me, the longer the price of oil stays down, the more likely it is that one or more oil-producing nations will attack, one way or another, they'll assault Saudi Arabia or Kuwait. And this might be the black swan event, you know, that triggers big trouble for all of us. So who knows? It's just strange. Low prices are hurting OPEC nations. OPEC nations are not likely to just sit there and say, well, we'll suffer through it. They're likely to react. If they do, we could see strange things happen in this world. I'm out of time. Melody's out of time. Program's out of time. We'll be back tomorrow. I want to thank all of you for listening. In the meantime, may the good Lord bless you, me, Melody, and Frank, the producer. Bye-bye. I work all night. I work all day to pay the bills I have to pay. Ain't it sad? Still, there never seems to be a single penny left for me. That's too bad. In my dream, I have a friend. If I'm not really a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work at all. I'd fool around and have a ball. Money, money, money.
things in this world are more important than clean, pure water. Understanding this, ABR makes four tabletop water distillers available to you for purchase. First, we have the five and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $139. The second is a five and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $189. The third is a three and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $189. And our premier tabletop distiller is a three and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $250. All our distillers have a stainless steel boiling pot, dome, and cooling tubes. And the premier version also has a splash flap to protect against contamination of the cooling tubes. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com for more information and protect your water supply. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC sees in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be dependent on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from ABR. The ABR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Food prices going up, homes being foreclosed, unemployment insurance running out, jobs leaving the country. Many people cannot afford to eat or keep a roof over their head. Too many can do either. Messiah's Branch has a mission church in Wichita, Kansas that helps the victims of this banker's economy, the American people. Your neighbors, the mission is the last hope for so many Americans. We need your help to lift up the poorest of the poor. These are men, women, and children once had homes, now in the street. They all need what you need. First aid, beds, food, clothing, and so on. You can send a monetary gift or a box of necessities to 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Or donate online by going to wichitahomeless.com or simply call 316-619-4886. Welcome to the Messiah's Brand Broadcast, a one-hour prophecy program on the American Voice Radio Network. Featuring Pastor Dan of the Messiah's Branch Ministry. And now, here's Pastor Dan. Greetings, Saints, and welcome to the Messiah's Branch Prophecy Hour. We are broadcasting live from the Playhills of Kansas, and we're on the American Voice Radio Network. Today's date is January 8th, 2015. <laughs> 
Most just don't realize it, but we are in that time of the end, and that's the time before Messiah's glorious return. It's time to get out of sin, the world, and look to the holy city. Look to the one who suffered and died for you. Please make this choice tonight. If you need help after this program, call me. I'll pray for you or with you. If you get the machine, please leave your name, your number, your prayer request, or message. The phone number, of course, is 620-878-4682. 620-878-4682. In an emergency, my cell phone number is 316-619-4886. And we are indeed in a time of the end, and we can see the armies of the Antichrist rising up out there and coming forward in their preliminary stage. So watch, folks. And we apologize to you for not being on for the last couple of weeks, but we were at the Mission Church working in. And most people were out on holidays. I don't think anybody was listening anyway, or were you? Point being is we are back, and we're ready to give you a powerful program tonight. You can always find updates, though, with our breaking news, our ministry, radio program archives, and our mailing address at our blog, which is simply prophecyhour.com. That's prophecyhour.com. And, folks, if most people out there are now listening over their smartphone, and so that site is prophecyhour.com. It's very smartphone-friendly, and if you scroll down on the right side, you'll find a thing that says End Time Radio Archives. That both has Mission Watch Archives, and it also has um, Prophecy Hour Archives. They have apps so that you can listen to the programs, and so if you go to uh, Podomatic, uh, branch.automatic.com or just click the link in time radio archives you will take you to, to our archive site and there are apps that you can get for your smartphone um, to listen to these radio programs so i'm really glad to be back tonight and we've got a powerful program for you tonight anyway first a prayer and then we'll bring on tonight's guests but i want to ask you in advance to please consider donating for radio airtime so we can stay on the air and also pray about supporting Wichita Mission Church. Any size donation will help. We do really need your help because, as you know, we do not sell anything. Now for a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, in Yeshua HaMashiach's name, I pray. Father, I pray that radio goes tonight according to your will and not my will and not necessarily our guest will, Father, but your will, Father Yahweh. And so please give everyone out there ears in which to hear the truth tonight. Please bless this program and bless our listening audience. Amen and amen. Well, we're <clears throat> tonight we have Steve Henderson back on with us. And so, Steve, why don't you come on? on. Greetings and shalom to you, Pastor Dan. Well, you know what? I, I brought you on abruptly. I looked over here on my read sheet, and I didn't have anything to introduce you with. So uh, <laughs> I forgot to do it. Anyway, that's yeah. what you get for taking off for a couple of weeks, I guess. 
Well, it's always a joy, brother. It's a joy to be on your Coffee Hour program. Uh, Steve, you've been on with us before, and, and you've got a couple of – don't you have a couple of DVDs? Tell them where your website is and, and give them a, a, a little something what's over there. So that'll give you your own intro. Yes, I uh, I have the Sherwood of Prophecy Ministries um, located in Oklahoma. My main mission is to uh, mainly uh, uh, help atheists and agnostics and people who don't know the Lord to, to uh, show them the Scripture – and convince them that there is one that goes in from the beginning. And so I have conducted several seminars that are prophetically based, that use Bible prophecy in a PowerPoint fashion to uh, illustrate that there is uh, a great hope that we have. It's not about all gloom and doom. It's about a hope. Uh, it's called a blessed hope in Scripture. And uh, there are too many people walking around that have no hope at all. And I hope that uh, through my little efforts that I have, what the Lord is doing with me, that I can help others to find uh, Yeshua as Savior, and that's my main mission, brother. Yeah, amen, amen. I, I'm sure glad to have you on. Um, what do you think about, you know, the whole world seems to be talking about this thing that happened yesterday in, in France, um, and we do see finally see a few in the uh, honest media coming forward and saying that people are just not saying using the thing Islamic and they need to identify it and while others are being silent. What do you think about that whole situation? Or you even gave it any thought? I have given it much thought. In fact, I I recognize it as a, it's a big, big beast. And uh, it's getting larger. And I don't understand it. But, you know, uh, throughout the history of the world, when Yahweh got ready to take down large nations, he wound up getting all the little people on the block together uh, to take care of the bully. And uh, this this Islamophobia, as they refer to it, is a real deal. And uh, right now in Iran, they are holding a Islamic conference with over 60 countries uh, that they're sponsoring uh, to try to find out how they can formulate a unity of the Islamic world against the enemies of uh, Islam, which uh, predominantly are the West, the great Satan, and uh, the Zionist regime, which would be Israel. Well, you know, brother, I feel like that. You know, the West, You know, we've been too busy running, running to and fro, so to speak, and our, you know, leaders doesn't. Uh, current administration doesn't seem to want to point anything towards Islam, but I really feel that something is coming strongly to the United States. It just, you know, I, I can't say how point to ex- any one exact thing. Something I feel in my spirit. What do you think? Very obviously, brother, uh, there is talk, a lot of talk over there. And we think there's quite a distance between us and them. But uh, their whole plan is to uh, take take on the West. And uh, they do have people coming across the southern borders, I understand, uh, just waiting for a call from the leadership to uh, create a lot of havoc. And I think it will be a lot larger than 9-11. And I uh, I expect that to happen. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, I could quote from here to midnight statements by ISIS, Al Qaeda, uh, you know the Islamic Jihad, Hamas, all of these groups that are uh, are fanatics are uh, enemies of the great Satan or the West and of, uh, right. of Israel. And their whole focus, my friend, is to eliminate and put underfoot 
of these big nations so that Sharia law can be uh, put out on top. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one more, I'm going to, I want to say one more thing before we get into what you want to talk about tonight. Um, and this, folks, this is to you out there. I really want to tell you that I really believe deeply in my spirit that you need to, number one, you need to get right with the Lord Yeshua. You need to get on your face and get right with him and make sure that your salvation is assured. From that, you need to go to your family and make sure their salvation is assured. And then you need to go. Let me finish here a minute, brother. Give me a minute. Okay. Anyway, I need you folks to concentrate on what I'm telling you. I really feel deeply that, that America is in danger like it never has been before. I want you to, you need to watch your back when you go to crowded places. If you feel in your spirit that you shouldn't be there, then don't be there because that's the spirit moving you. You need to learn to listen to have that relationship so you know when to fall on unction from, from the Father through the Holy Spirit, through Yeshua. You need to do that. My heart goes out, and you need to watch your back. Secondly, I want you to make sure that you, you need to have a little bit of preparations at home. Whether that means a couple of weeks' worth of food or six months' worth of food, you need to have something so you have time to think in case something happens. Because I don't know how I can uh, how to explain it, but I do feel something very strongly is coming. And so this is my warning to you. I'm not saying, thus saith the Lord, I'm not saying today to my or tomorrow, but I feel encouraged to give you this warning. Back to you, Steve. That's a very appropriate message, Pastor Dan. I feel exactly the same way. I think this is a day of preparation. And what encourages me about all of it is Bible prophecy. And prophecy is, is a light that shines in a dark place, and eventually it will illuminate your mind and heart to uh, to understand the truth of that uh, we're not just here to, to exist and, and, and die, but we're here because we, we are created by the intelligent designer who loved us and gave himself for us, who died and was risen from the grave, went back to his father and said, I'm coming back, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I do, I'm coming back to receive you to myself that where I am, you can be also. And he gave us plenty of things to look at uh, to, to prepare his people. And uh, I would like to examine uh, one of those prophecies this evening, Pastor Dan, that would help us to know exactly where we are in the, the, the scope of uh, his return. Okay, amen. You have the floor, brother, or the mic, as it would be. Okay, my friend. I want to look at one of the most overlooked, in-your-face, end-time prophecies found in the prophetic writings. And I've scanned the base of the most popular prophecy teachers to hear about what they are expositing on concerning a couple of the visions out of the prophet Daniel and find very little said about these particular visions. And so this evening, I would like to uh, go back. I know back in around uh, the fall of 2013, brother, I shared a couple of in your Prophecy Hour programs which centered on select passages out of the book of Daniel. Tonight, I want to reexamine a certain vision and bring it down to 2015. A lot has happened since I uh, shared that with you uh, a year and a half ago, and I will try my hardest not to be too repetitive in this. Uh, <clears throat> if you remember, we discovered uh, that uh, Daniel's visions, from Daniel 7 to Daniel 12, have a special significance for the end. In fact, as the end approaches, 
Those who would run back and forth in the prophet's writings, in the words and the content of the visions, additional knowledge and much more light will come out of those words, and, and at that particular time, the book will become unsealed. And I guess what I would like to do, for the benefit of those who may have not heard those programs back a while ago, I would like to take uh, the, the readers to Daniel, the 12th chapter, for a moment, to lay kind of a base on, on where I'm going uh, from here, if you don't mind. Uh, Daniel chapter 12, and I'm going to look at verse 4. In Daniel 12 and verse 4, Daniel told, fill up the book and the words of the book until the time of the end. And at the time of the end, people were on back and forth in the knowledge of this, these words, these filled words and this filled book. And knowledge will then increase. As I uh, shared with you before, I don't believe the knowledge that we're talking about contextually deals with the, the horse and buggy to space shuttle knowledge, but I believe it deals with the filled words of the book. And it, we would not know the, the, the whole content of the book of Daniel until the time of the end, and then we would look at the very players and the geographical locations and other things that clearly are identified there and recognize we are finally at that place where we're getting ready to go home. Um, now, in verse 9 of chapter 12, uh, the messenger again reiterates and reminds Daniel as to the sealing up of his visions. In verse 9 of chapter 12, he again says, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are filled up until the time of the end. So at the, at the time of the end, uh, we will look in this book, for those who are diligent in the study of, of his words, will find more light and more um, understanding that will help us to illuminate the saints, to prepare them for the coming of our Lord and Messiah, Yeshua. Well, by the way, this is the whole reason for studying prophecy. You know, it's, it's, it's all about his promise to come back to the sin-sick earth and gather up his elect from one end of the earth to the other. Amen, brother? Yeah, amen. And I don't know about you, but baking bricks under the taskmaster's whip in the Egyptian sun is getting pretty old. And we have a promised land that's coming. And uh, eventually, uh, the prophets are going to come to pass, uh, the, the writings, just exactly how they said it would happen. So I would uh, encourage those uh, who have their Bibles tonight to get them out, because I would want to take uh, you to certain passages in Scripture that uh, relate around an end-time vision. And it's very clearly identified as an end-time vision, and that's found in Daniel, the 8th chapter. And uh, if you'll go with me to that chapter, we'll um, take a look. <clears throat> now, in the Daniel 8th chapter, Daniel had received this vision, and uh, it was a very disturbing vision. In fact, in verse 26, I believe it is, of chapter 8, it was so uh, troubling to him, he became sick and fainted and, and for many days afterward. But let's center our focus on Daniel's narrative in verse 15 of chapter 8, and for context and to show you where this vision uh, is, where Gabriel put it. In verse 15 of chapter 8, it says, Then it happened, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Yulai who called and said, Gabriel, 
make this man to understand the vision. Now, in verse 16, when he came near to where he stood, he came and, and Daniel was afraid and fell on his face. Now, notice the very first thing that the mighty angel told Daniel. He says in verse 17, understand, son of man, this vision refers to the time of the end. So I don't have to guess when, when this vision of this infuriated ram and bullion ram, uh, uh, I'm sorry, infuriated goat and bullion ram takes place. And in response to the shocking revelation about the vision, Daniel went into a deep sleep, and then Gabriel had more to reveal to Daniel, touched him again, and he reiterated the exact time when the vision would take place in verse 19. It says, look, I am making you know what will happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. So very evidently, in, in two specific verses, uh, Gabriel told Daniel, this vision that is troubling to you is going to be an end-time vision. And after receiving additional insight as to the, who the animals represented, in addition to identifying the characteristics of the blasphemous, deceitful, murderous little horn who's in it, by the way, uh, is uh, uh, also found in Revelation 13 and uh, Daniel chapter 7, uh, who would be broken by Yeshua himself, we discover this revealing narrative in verse 26. Uh, it says, The vision of the evenings and the mornings, which was told, is true. Therefore, fill up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. So, friends, this has been one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted visions in the Bible. Why? Because Yahweh has had his hand on filling up this vision, and it tells us time to understand the details. And only at the end would those who were diligent and hungry seekers for additional truth discover the additional details that had been previously overlooked. They will recognize that the very players on the world scene who are creating havoc actually finally fit into the specifics of the vision. If someone believes that a prophecy has met its literal concise fulfillment in a historical record, which is a case in this particular verse, or in this chapter 8, it's always been exposited as a historical narrative where uh, the Medes and Persians uh, succeeded Babylon, and then Greece, Alexander the Great, uh, came and, and conquered the Medes and Persians, and, and then the little horn, which they identify as Antiochus Epiphanes, laid swine on the altar, and, you know, that's fine and dandy to make application to this, this vision, and I'm not saying that there is not some partial fulfillment, but the specifics are important, and those who ignore them will be caught off guard. Truth is progressive when you, you consider Bible prophecy, Brother Dan, and, and it, it's, it's not only up to date, but it's ahead of date, and so when Gabriel says this is an end-time vision, we need to place it where Gabriel places it at the end of time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Amen. Okay. Amen. So, in fact, every specific it's very vital to interpret it in its right place. If you're putting history, if you're imposing history on Bible prophecy, then the, the historical narrative has to line up with the specifics of the prophecy. And in my study of uh, ancient history, I recognized uh, very clearly that there were some pieces that were missing uh, in uh, the, the, the concept of Alexander the Great being the, the great horn and and then when he died, his four generals took over, which is a common uh, 
interpretation in most cases. And uh, Antiochus Pythes wound up coming out of one of the four and laying swine on the altar, and that was the abomination of desolation. But Yeshua, uh, you know, a couple hundred years later, said, when you therefore see that spoken of by Daniel the prophet, so that, that right there ought to uh, show you that, that that didn't have anything to do with uh, Antiochus Pythes uh, and uh, that abomination. It could have been a type, or, you know, they have types and shadows, so too many pick uh, out verses that seem to fit their interpretation of a prophecy and leave a bunch of clear-cut scriptures out that contradict or just don't seem to fit well. And this happens way too often. Do you agree? I agree. In addition, Yeshua places Daniel's vision at the end, which ushers in a time of trouble, which precedes his coming back for his bride. Now, if you remember, Yeshua specifically spoke of the prophecies of Daniel uh, and he tied it into the end when he said in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14, as he was giving signs to his disciples about what would happen soon before his return, he said the gospel will be preached as a witness unto all the nations, then the end will come. So there we go. He's talking about the end here. And then please note that Yeshua is clearly speaking uh, of this end event with something that, that Daniel uh, wrote. And he says, when you therefore... See the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So there again, Yeshua ties the end with the gospel going to all the world. And oh, hey, I got to break in. I got to break in. We got less than thirty seconds before we got to go to a break. So, uh, brother, real quick, give your website, and we'll come back and talk. Yeah, it's so SureWordProphecy.org. Uh, I do have a lot of these articles uh, that, that apply to what I'm speaking of. Uh, go over there to Prophetic News that you enjoy. Yeah, amen, folks. Go check it out. And you can always find a link. where. It, right now we're talking live, but when you go to uh, our In Time Radio Archives, there will be a link to his website. So check it out. Check out the other programs over there, and also you can find archives at American Voice Radio. In the meantime, we'll be back in three minutes. Pastor Dan will be right back. Few things in this world are more important than clean, pure water. Understanding this, ABR makes four tabletop water distillers available to you for purchase. First, we have the five and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $139. The second is a five and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $189. The third is a three and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $189. And our premier tabletop distiller is a three and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $250. All our distillers have a stainless steel boiling pot, dome, and cooling tubes. And the premier version also has a splash flap to protect against contamination of the cooling tubes. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com for more information and protect your water supply. Food prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? 
Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe, all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Unemployment insurance running out, jobs leaving the country. Many people cannot afford to eat or keep a roof over their head. Too many can do either. Messiah's Branch has a mission church in Wichita, Kansas, that helps the victims of this banker's economy, the American people. Your neighbors, the mission is the last hope for so many Americans. We need your help to lift up the poorest of the poor. These are men, women, and children who once had homes, now in the street. They all need what you need. First aid, beds, food, clothing, and so on. You can send a monetary gift or a box of necessities to 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Or donate online by going to Wichita Homeless. Or simply call 
and uh, soups with it. We've just been, you know, been buying meat, but we need your help. Pray about supporting us. You, you know, we're there to help the poor, and we're there to bless them, and, and so help us. You know, I don't sell anything, and, yeah, I'm, I'm planning on writing a book one of these days when I get time and sell that, but, you know, I'm more about warning people. So, you know, even if I write a book, if I get the book written that I want, I'm going to have a hard time selling it, you know, because I want to give it away. But pray about it, supporting the Wichita Mission Church. You know, no, you won't get any recognition on the face of this earth from it unless, of course, you want a tax deduction. You can claim it for your taxes. But we're supposed to donate to things that we get nothing in return. That's where the greatest blessing comes from. So you've got to give from your heart. And that doesn't matter if you're paying, like, regular tithes to your church, you know, and giving them regular offerings. If you're doing that grumbling, then you're not going to get a blessing for it. So you need to pray about the things that you're doing. You know, donate to the things that your father makes you feel good about, and look for the blessing on the other side. Or don't even worry about the blessing. Just give because it's the right thing to do. Have you ever heard of that? Just giving because it's the right thing to do. Because, you know, the Father notices all donations that come from where? Your heart. That's where. From your heart. So pray about it. We could really use your help tonight. You can donate online, mail a check or money order, and you can find all that information at prophecyhour.com, prophecyhour.com, or you can call me at 620-878-4682. And, again, you can donate with a check or money order, or you can make an online donation. That gets me, it gets help to us immediately, and we could use your help. But no matter what, you know, we've been doing this 15 years and with by faith. You know, so many, we spend down to nothing in our pockets because we just keep helping, and we have faith to believe that the Father will replace whatever the need is. So, we don't have. We don't live in some big fancy house. I live in a house that I that uh, I raised. I raised four children in, and I'm now basically helping my son raise four grandchildren in. And you know what? I paid for this house. I paid fourteen hundred dollars in back taxes after the father led me to this house by a dream vision. And so, you know, I raised four children here in Florence, Kansas, and I'm working on grandchildren. And we've been taking care of the Wichita Mission Church. It stayed 15 years. It stayed open. We've never failed to open because of funds. Never had the lights or electric turn off. Yeah, my wife lately has been paying the wage stuff. The bills have been doubling, and then she's been paying the cutoff, but the lights are still on. So pray about it this year. You know, pray about it. We really could use your help and encourage others to listen to this radio program because the more people that listen, then the more people get warned about the current situation we're in, and that. It really means a lot to me is to warn the people so that maybe by warning, people will get ready for Yeshua's return and not be caught off guard. So I just pray that for you. And we love you, folks. And so um, if you need to call me, 620-878-4682, then I better get off of here and let Steve get on. He's probably tired of listening to me rattle. So, Steve, are you still with me, brother? I'm here, brother, and just uh, really happy that you are one of the, the ones that are actually obeying Scripture to the point of, of taking care of uh, those who are less fortunate. And uh, if we could all grab a hold of that vision, uh, this will be a different place. Uh, I commend you, uh, brother, for your for your work there in Wichita. Well, thank you, brother. And, you know, 
know, we do it not because, you know, we're trying to earn a way to have it or any of those things. We just do it because it seems to be the right thing to do. You know, we believe that people ask me all the time, well, why do you do that? Well, why don't you do that? We believe it's the natural thing to do, you know. So, amen. Anyway, brother, you were really getting into uh, the book of Daniel, and, and wow, take us back into that. Okay, uh, we we were discussing Daniel 8, and as I said before and have said for a long time, this particular vision is uh, one of the visions that I, I've been studying for, uh, you know, over a couple decades, because I recognize, number one, that Gabriel did say it was an entire vision, and then uh, I, as I began to, to mull over the, the uh, world powers and the, the people that are really in the news and and uh, what is going on as far as the shaping up of uh, conflict in the world, uh, I recognize that there there are a couple of entities that are the main focus in the world right now, and that is uh, Iraq and Iran. And in the prophecy of Daniel chapter 8, there is a ram in this prophecy. And I'm not going to, to go through uh, the, the prophecy. You can look at uh, that uh, later on. But we do know that this is an end-time vision. So if we place the ram and the goat that are identified in the Scripture and at the end of time, we're going to find uh, some certain geographical locations that are specifically identified. The ram is standing at a river, uh, now known as the Karun River, the ancient Ulai, which is right there in between Iraq and Iran. And that is where this conflict begins, where this ram begins to push it's bullying its neighbors. It's getting very, very uh, uh, violent, and, and uh, no one can seem to do anything with this ram. But then that brings on a response from this goat that comes across the surface of the whole earth from the west and doesn't touch the ground, and it comes and it confronts this ram uh, because of what the ram is doing over there. Now, I find it interesting that the prophet says that it comes across the surface of the whole earth from the west. And the, the focus that Daniel has is on a great horn that's in the, between the eyes of the goat. And when we go to the interpretation found in Daniel 8, the great horn uh, in the King James translation, it says it's the first king. But in the Hebrew, it actually means it's a number one kingdom or a number one nation, in fact, in in one of the verses in Daniel 8, it says that out of that broken horn or that great nation came up four. And so we're looking for a, a great nation that comes across the surface of the whole earth from the west. And the focus is on this great horn. Now, when the great horn breaks, then four come up in its place, and it goes toward the four winds of the heavens, indicating that when this great nation breaks from the west, then four are going to take its place, and then it's out of one of these four horns that the little horn comes up and then uh, begins to do his deceitful work, as we find uh, a lot of identifications of this little horn, not only in Daniel 8. In Daniel 8, you find four horns. In Daniel 7, you find four beasts. And there's a Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 put together, and it's a repeat and enlargement. The first year of Belshazzar was the first vision, uh, and the context was that Daniel was by uh, the sea, or he saw the four winds striving upon the great sea, and when these four winds were blowing on the sea, then these four beasts come up. 
but chronologically, Daniel 8 comes before Daniel 7, and the conflict that starts this, that allows these four beasts to come up, is this uh, goat and ram vision. And something that this ram does really makes this goat really, really mad. And so um, it's very evident to me that as I began to, to study these prophecies, that Iraq and Iran um, are major focuses in the world today. In fact, uh, back in 2001, when the trade, uh, the World Trade Center bombings happened, uh, George Bush stood up for the world, and he identified Iraq and Iran as a couple of axes of evil, along with North Korea. And when I uh, heard that way back then, I, I began to really pay attention to these prophecies. And since then, I have seen this this little storm gather into a great, huge storm that's, that's coming, that's brewing on this earth. And uh, we're going to have to do something uh, with Iran here pretty soon, because they are openly threatening Israel with <clears throat> destruction and annihilation. And uh, remember, the, the book is a Jewish book. Called The, the Bible is called uh, it's a Jewish book written by Jewish prophets and, and, and pertain to something that is happening to Israel. Now, when it talks about the Medes and Persians, uh, there's some connection between um, uh, that and Israel. Or if it talks about Damascus, any of these writings that the prophets gave, when it mentions a particular prophecy, then it has some connection to do with the Jewish people. Now, in the current news, and unfortunately, brother, I am absolutely almost in shock because I had a, a whole gamut of articles that I wanted to share with you to show you exactly what, uh, what is going on with the, the news as far as Iran, Israel, and the United States and the wars and rumors of wars. And uh, my computer started... To, uh, to break down, and I have never seen anything like this. Um, it, it hasn't happened before, and, it, and I'm still trying to pull it up at this particular moment. Uh, I lost all of my articles that I was going to share with you on this program, but it looks like I have saved uh, in one of my emails, and if you'll be bear with me just one minute, I'll, I'll see if I can pull this up. Okay. One of my articles, uh, thank, thank you, uh, Yeshua, for this. Uh, I had so many that I want to share. Just to show you that the focus of the world is on uh, the Persians, which uh, Daniel said that the, the, the ram are the kings and the Medes and Persians. And, and so, you know, it's one thing to put that in history, but it's another thing to put it at the end. And we always have recognized that the Persians are Iran. And so if we put the Persians at the end of time, we're going to have to see uh, Iran in, in the front and center of things. And I, I'm looking at articles uh, constantly that, that uh, involve Iran and their rhetoric to annihilate Israel. Here's one article that says, Iranian regime escalates and threats to annihilate Israel. This is December 17, 2014. It states, Iranian regime escalates uh, the deadline for a joint plan of action between Iran and the P plus one uh, uh, convention that's trying to formulate a, a uh, resolution on their nuclear program. And it says, as global oil prices have dropped sharply 
and severely. It impacts the Iranian economy, and Iranian officials, mostly from Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guards, have within a short span of six weeks to ratchet up their call to annihilate Israel. IRGC officials emphasize the missile capabilities of Iran and of the Palestinian faction that it arms, saying that these will hasten Israel's elimination. One major motif in statements during this time by Iranian regime officials is the arming of the West Bank. At an Islamic conference in Tehran in late November, the uh, Supreme Leader Al Khamenei uh, reiterated the promise that he had made several months previously that the West Bank will be armed with missiles and Gaza had been armed and that Israel's security would be deteriorating day by day. And the IRGC commander predicted that Israel will be eliminated thanks to the missile capabilities of the resistance factions uh, and stated that the West Bank will become hell for Israel, whose destruction is imminent. I, um, I have uh, probably four or five hundred articles uh, in this last year that uh, regard uh, the focus of, the, of Israel and Iran. And we know that Netanyahu has stood up before the United Nations and said the greatest danger facing the world is the Iranian regime and, and having the capabilities of having nuclear weapons. And we've been going over there trying to deal with the Iranians, and while, all the while they are uh, uh, putting nuclear uh, centrifuges together uh, underneath mountains. And uh, they're hiding a whole bunch. The IAEA uh, says that they are uh, in some ways conforming to the, the – the, uh, nuclear uh, compromise. However, uh, Israel knows better and most of the world knows better that they are diligently trying to pursue nuclear weapons. And, and if it gets in the hands of, of Iran, because Iran uh, is supporting Hamas and they are sending weaponry over to the Palestinian uh, leadership, uh, they are sending weapons over to Hezbollah, which is on the north side of uh, Israel. Uh, in fact, there uh, was an article last week that I saw where they, they showed three Iranian Republican Guard up in Lebanon. And uh, uh, what is so amazing to me, Brother Dan, is that the, the whole focus and out in the open, Iran is calling for the annihilation and destruction of Israel. And Israel is getting to the point now, which and you can't, they can't be blamed, that they're saying if you can't bring a compromise and you can't eliminate their nuclear program, we are going to have to take this in our own hands because there will not be a second Holocaust. And I'm telling you, there are some very, very significant um, uh, uh, harsh rhetoric uh, back and forth against uh, from Iran to the, the United States. The United States is threatening Iran. Israel is threatening Iran. Iran is just uh, here last week, had uh, some war games, and they were bragging that they had turned away a U.S. warship down there, uh, and they are really uh, saying some things uh, out in the open against the United States in their face and against Israel, and at some point in time, something is going to make this go from the West, who is very, very angry at something this Rand does, and, and they, are, they want to be the, the, the number one Middle Eastern uh, power, and that is what their pursuit is. And they are Shia uh, Islamic uh, adherents, and, and they are the, the Twelvers. They're the, uh, the ones, the apocalyptic, messianic, uh, 
uh, uh, Islamic adherents that, that believe that the, the 12 imam is going to come at a time of great trouble, and they, and they think that they have to initiate that in order for it to happen. And they recognize that Israel is going to have to be removed, and it's all about that place over there, that occupied territory called Jerusalem. Uh, yeah, what, what are your thoughts, brother? Well, absolutely. I, I, I don't believe that. I, I just don't see Obama, you know, pushing Iran too far. But I do. Look, and in that case, though, you're right. And Israel's going to have to do something. I'm watching yeah. a lot of things. One thing is that uh, recently Russia started shipping um, missiles to Hezbollah and to some others in the area for to go against Israel with. And ISIS is also pushing towards Israel. And so there is a lot going on. And I do believe Iran, though, with the nuclear weapons, is the one to watch. Yes. And we find articles all over the newspaper. One is entitled, West Will Fail in Trying to Bring Iran to a Knees. Uh, and this is a Khomeini who said this, that Western countries will not be able to force Iran to sign the agreement on Iran's nuclear program on their terms. And uh, adding that the West has tried hard to bring the Islamic Republic to a knees, and it says that uh, they they will not and cannot bring our nation to a knees. So they might as well just go ahead and get get this uh, program, uh, you know, to to release the sanctions that they have uh, put put on uh, Iran, and that's right. the only reason why they've come to take the table in the first place. Uh, well, I think uh, just a minute. You know, with the, with the dropping, the huge drop in oil prices that are are causing real hardship with Russia and Iran, yeah. um, that though that in itself could push them to say, okay, well, you know, we're not, we don't have to worry about the riches, so we might as well go ahead and fight it now. You know, absolutely. And so, and, uh, so there are. Uh, there are a, a, a lot of nervous people in Israel. One uh, article I have here, cornered but unbound by nuclear pact, Israel reconsiders military action against Iran. This is uh, in November of this, this uh, 2014. It says that Israeli official cites uh, a sunset clause in proposed comprehensive deal which guarantees Iran a path into a nuclear club and may corner Israel into war. Um, it says that uh, Israel has issued a stark public warning to its allies with a clear argument, and current proposals guarantee the perpetuation of a crisis back in Israel into a corner from which military force against Iran provides the only logical exit. Friends, there is going to be a tremendous conflict here, uh, here in our near future. Uh, another article, Iran threatens to flood Gaza with millions of Iranian fighters. This is November 2014. The head of the Iranian government's uh, paramilitary force claims that millions of volunteers have applied to fight in Gaza and Syria. It propagates the head of Iran's paramilitary force has claimed it is raising an army of millions, listen, millions, to flood Gaza and Syria to support Iran's allies, Iran's semi-official paper said uh, on Monday. That Brigadier General Mohammed Naki, uh, commander of the paramilitary force, says millions of Bahijas are ready in Iran to be dispatched to Syria and Gaza, and they have come to us for registration. The continued war in Gaza will acceler accelerate arming the West Bank and annihilation of the occupiers 
and the Holy Cuds, which is uh, Jerusalem in their language, occupiers. Fear from arming the people and the resistance movement in the West Bank show how deeply Tel Aviv is vulnerable to the start of a new phase of fight and resistance. So uh, the storm is brewing. Uh, there's talk back and forth. Remember, Yeshua said that there will be wars and rumors of wars, but be not troubled, for then nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And Daniel is very clear and replete with this, this conflict with this ram and goat, where uh, something that the ram begins to do, now whether it be something that Iran initiates, but I'll tell you, with the rhetoric that they're, they're uh, putting out in the airways, uh, it's, I don't understand why, why Israel or the United States has not, has not done something about it so far. Here's an article. Iran TV airs cleric threats to raise Tel Aviv and target U.S. bases. Um, you know, i, I got to go on and on. It talks about right. that uh, any place in Israel is vulnerable uh, with the missiles that they're developing, and, and uh, the Sajidia ballistic missiles can hit and raise to the ground any place in Israel as well as any American base in the region. And the Ayatollah complained that, that Israel's atomic or missile centers are within range of the powerful, fast, and awe-inspiring missiles of Iran. Um, the Ayatollah, who took frequent pauses seemingly to allow the cloud of thousands to chant, among other things, Allahu Akbar, death to England, death to America, and death to Israel, mentioned the Iron Dome defense system by name and asserted that the acclaimed Israeli missile interceptor was no match for Iranian ballistic missile technology. So on and on and on, uh, we find the articles that, that put this thing together for us that show us exactly where we are in the history of the world. Here's one particular yeah. article, Obama. There's a big gap between the West and Iran. I'm sorry, brother, uh, am I running out of time? Or? Yeah, I was I was going to tell you, you got about a minute left or less to say goodbye. So okay. you, when you when we're having a good time, time flies, brother. What oh, say? absolutely, absolutely. Let me just share this, this a couple of headlines and one with that. Iran Supreme Leader touts nine-point plan to destroy Israel. That is uh, in the news uh, as we speak. Iran's community Israel has no cure to, to be annihilated. That's another article. Iran nuclear threat five times greater than previously thought. Another article. Iran, we aim to destroy U.S. Navy forces in the Gulf. So there's something going to happen, brother, between the West and Iran and uh, that, that coalition over there. And we look for it uh, to happen. And I, I just feel that we're on the very uh, precipice of seeing these, these, uh, this prophecy fulfilled before our very eyes. And the good news is Yeshua's coming, brother. Yeah, amen. At the end of all these things, Yeshua's coming. The, the baby will be born. And that's Yeshua. Amen. Well, thanks for being on with, with me, brother. I'm sure you'll do it again. And in the meantime, i got to say goodbye and be blessed. Okay, you be blessed. Sir. All right. All right. Folks, uh, pray about supporting the Wichita Mission Church. We really do need your help. Uh, let's get into the first of the year. Uh, I'd like to catch up all the bills and everything uh, and march forward. But it doesn't matter because, you know, we're going to be there uh, like we've been there for 15 years. We're doing uh, – the greatest thing to do is be within the Father's will. He never offered us riches on earth, and he never honored 
said that we wouldn't be without tribulation. He said we would have tribulation. So, you know, we're used to it, and we have a lot of faith. And by faith um, and believing in what he said and what he told us to do, we were still there after 15 years, just like we're still on radio, even though that we always have to, to ask for donations for airtime, we're still here. But we do need to get radio airtime paid, so pray about it. You must remember there is only one God. He is your father. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the only true God. There's only one God. The other things is just the devil. His son is Yeshua HaMashiach, and he gave his life for your repentant sins. He didn't give his life so that you continue on in sin, so that you would turn away from sin, repent, and turn away from sin. He rose after three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He said this was his sign given to a wicked and adulterous generation, was a sign of, of Jonah, three days and three nights. Through him and only through him is the way of the Father. Remember that, folks. Anyway, boys, 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 be a blessing to others. If you're not a blessing to others, then I really don't know where you're at. Okay, Lord our God, Father, King of the Universe, asking Yeshua HaMashiach's name that the Father blesses and keeps you, and his face shines upon you, and is gracious to you, and gives you peace like no one or nothing else can. Until next Thursday, this is Pastor Dan saying goodbye and shalom. You've just heard the Messiah's Branch broadcast featuring Pastor Dan. To contact Dan on the Internet, go to messiahsbranch.org. To write to Dan, send a note to Messiah's Branch, 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Tune in next time for the Messiah's Branch. Unemployment insurance running out, jobs leaving the country. Many people cannot afford to eat or keep a roof over their head. Too many can be neither. Messiah's Branch has a mission church in Wichita, Kansas, that helps the victims of this banker's economy, the American people, your neighbors. The mission is the last hope for so many Americans. We need your help to lift up the poorest of the poor. These are men, women, and children once had homes, now in the street. They all need what you need. First aid, beds, food, clothing, and so on. You can send a monetary gift or a box of necessities to 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Or donate online by going to wichitahomeless.com. Or simply call 316-619-4886. With our current economy, there's no time to lose. Apothecary Herbs has their own version of the stimulus package. It includes sending you highly potent and certified organic herbal products at a 15% discount. Here's how it works. Mail in your order using our catalog order form, online downloadable order form, or if shopping on our website at thepowerherbs.com, print off the contents of your shopping cart, subtract 15%, add your shipping fee, and mail it in with your payment. Get well and save money. 
What could be better than that? Order by mail now and save 15%. Call Apothecary Herbs for a free product catalog, toll free, 866-229-3663, international 704-875-8010, or online, thepowerherbs.com. Don't make the aspirin mistake. Aspirin was discovered by mistake during World War II and suppresses your immune system and prevents blood clotting. Don't expose your body to risk when you can use a natural inflammation and pain reliever called Extra Strength Pain Relief by Apothecary Herbs. Discover the power this formula has with salicin to enter the system in 60 seconds to work hard and relieve pain for 12 hours. Whether it's arthritis, sports injury, or flu, you can relieve aches, pain, and swelling with our Extra Strength Pain Relief Formula. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the three www.thepowerherbs.com. Wendy Wilson, I hope you had a great day. Uh, well, here on Herb Talk, we're here to empower you. That's what we like to do. So we got a great show. Thanks for joining us here on American Voice Radio. Metric stuff. So we're going to be talking about um, some New Year's resolutions and what you could do to improve health for the New Year. So we got a lot of stuff to talk about. And we do have a quack report, but don't forget, coming up a week from today, we're going to be uh, talking with Dr. Rebecca Carley. She'll be back here with us. And, of course, if you're interested in learning more about Dr. Carley, her website is reversingvaccineinduceddiseases.com. I know, that's a mouthful. So we have a handy little a link, a banner link on our links page. So you can click on that right off the powerherbs.com website to get there and learn more about what Dr. Carley has to offer. And she'll be with us on the 20th. And uh, we'll be checking on, in with her about, you know, Ebola and um, all kinds of neat things and see what she has for us. Um, what, oh, um, yeah, I'm working on having a new guest on. Um, we're kind of in the talks with the PR people. So because um, I, I kind of came across by accident this really neat um, exercise routine. It's very low impact. And so I'm trying to get the host and author and, uh, I guess, inventor of the technique on the show, so hopefully we can work that out and have um, that person on in the near future. Hmm. Well, a big salute and semper fire, righteous men and women in uniform. We're lifting them up in prayer as usual, and I'm 
I'm praying that there's righteous men and women all over this nation that will stand up and just say no to all this nonsense. Um, you know, yeah, if you read your good book, the Bible, it says we're supposed to plead to the Lord for justice and truth and um, righteousness. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what he wants us to do. And you can read all about that in Isaiah chapter 59. So, um, and if and if and if if you read the if you read the Bible, you'll find out what God thinks of liberals. He calls them vile. I challenge you to find that verse. <laughs> but in the meantime, uh, hit the knees, seek the Lord's face. Uh, you know, because uh, we, we we as a nation need some help. All the world needs some help. And mind the time; it grows short. And without further ado, let's do the quack report. Thanks, Frank. What do we have in the quacker? Um, here's a new research. Uh, researchers from the University of Missouri wanted to find out just how people are are reliant and and and, and close to their um, phone, uh, iPhones, their gadgets. So they did the study. And uh, they found out they, they gave two groups some uh, some puzzles to work out. And one group had their phone with them. One group had not their phone with them. And they also had some um, uh, a wireless uh, blood pressure cuffs on them. They were doing. Uh, the researchers wanted to find out, you know, what physical attributes happen when people don't have their phone with them. Well, it comes to find out that. Uh, people that were doing, let's say, the, the research puzzles, the work they were supposed to be focusing on, well, their heart rates increased if they didn't have their phones, their blood pressure went up. They also experienced some anxiety and unpleasantness. So the researchers found that the subject's performance also decreased compared to those who had their iPhones in their possession while they completed the similar task. So Russell Clayton, University School of Journalism and the lead author on the study, says that uh, the results of the study suggest that iPhones are capable of becoming more of an extension of the person, and when they're separated, they experience a lessening of themselves, a negative psychological state. Well, the more reliant you are on something, mm -hmm, the more uh, you know unfortunate circumstances are going, you're going to experience when you you don't have that item. See, and I guess more people are doing more on their phones and. Uh, a lot of information in there it's pretty critical i guess to their daily function so yeah they're going to have an issue we've got the situation here have to have my phone <laughs> well they're sleeping with their phones now people just can't get away from their technology we're going to get into a little bit of that technology in the first segment of the uh, show today well moving along in the quack report um Here's another study published in the Journal of Pediatrics, which evaluated the effectiveness of texting parents uh, reminders that they need to get their children's vaccines taken care of, whether it's flu shots or whatever. So the Columbia University Medical Center, um, uh, their public health division decided they were going to conjure up some new ways to you know, persuade or move more people to comply with vaccine recommendations. So they um, sent what is called, quote, educational text message reminders about flu shots and so forth um, to persuade parents to get their kids vaccinated. And the parents who received the educational text message uh, complied. The study said by 72.7%, whereas if they just got a standard text message, not an educational one, 
they complied by 66.7%. Compared to people who got written reminders in the mail, 57.1%. So when they asked parents, why did you comply? Over 60% of them said it's because they received uh, a text message. That was their primary reason. Wow. That prompted them to take their kid down and get injected with disease because they got a text message. There's something wrong with that. Think about it. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'm going to talk with Dr. Carly about that one. And last but not least in the quack report, let's uh, talk about high-fiber diets. They say are linked to lowering the risk of your of death. Yeah, mortality rates increase when people eat more fiber. It uh, reduces the risk of chronic diseases, including heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and uh, several types of cancers, according to the research. Um, this is out of Rutgers Health. Um, they said that they, the U.S. Department of Agriculture recommends, you know, us adults should have 14 grams of fiber every day within 1,000 calories. Um, but basically, you know, you should have several cups of fruits and vegetables raw each and every day. And uh, over time, that Im- improves your mortality rate, according to the research. Um, so they say be careful about the low-fiber or even high-fiber diets. Your body needs time to adjust, they said, to increase the fiber content. So do it gradually, they say, over time. And you'll see blood pressure and cholesterol and insulin uh, and, and come in line and reduces inflammation, according to this research. So... Um, Get that, get that healthy fruits and vegetables in the diet and watch the magic happen. And that wraps the quack report. Did we miss a duck? Some sort of soundbite, Frank? Hello, Frank. Uh-oh. I guess everything's okay in technology land. Well, better late than never. <laughs> All right, let's talk about this. Uh, why well, I'm going to call this section the body map, okay? Because we live in an age where scientific medicine wants to map every square inch of the human body, including your brain. So we're told that the latest technology being used can spy deep into tissues, read blood vessels as if they were roadmaps, and chart the unknown territory of our body's secrets. Now, some experts think that this is just the beginning of what appears to be a Star Trek experience in scanning the body for health problems. Instant diagnosis is one of the goals that this new technology wants to promote, and it's driven by multiple scans of the body and computer software models. So this new era in medical science seems to be on the eventual road of automation involving very little human assistance. So this is called biometrics. And the seed of biometrics is said to have been planted in 1879 by a French police clerk by the name of Ad- Adolphe Berliton, or Alphonse Berliton, I guess is how you pronounce that. So apparently he conceived of the idea that people should be identified by their specific body measurements. Hmm. So fingerprinting 
one of the first crude steps to the biometric age. So will this technology be a benefit or a burden? Well, we're going to check it out, okay? So right now it's huddle time because, you know, I see this massive big data technology, kind of like a football team in a huddle. You know, while in the huddle, the team gets strategy orders to launch against their opponents. So will these body scans be compiled in a cloud software to profile a person's health and maybe determine their level of worth or worthlessness? Question. Will the scans give false readings on how and how would, how would patients go about correcting incorrect data? That's a question, too. And will the data be used for health and life insurance or even employment? And will patients be forced to comply with treatments in order to qualify for benefits or employment? Just think about this stuff. Well, let's just check out one scan that has to do with the eyes. Uh, let's look at the technology in the vision field that is aggressively being marketed at eye clinics in the United States and the UK for your standard eye exams. Now, people don't always get an annual eye exam, and most insurance plans pretty much have dropped the free annual exam. I don't know if you've noticed that. Even when insurance did cover it, uh, we're told that four in ten people did not have their eyes checked on a regular basis. So if you've been to your ophthalmologist or optometrist's office lately, you may have been introduced to some odd-looking and large pieces of equipment designed to scan your eyes. You may recognize the term OptoMap as this technology scans and makes a map of your eyes. So according to uh, a reporter for the UK Daily Mail, um, Angela Epstein, Okay, Angela, uh, she says this new technology is marketed as having superior early warning detection when something is wrong with the health of the eyes. So she reported that some believe this technology is not necessary, and patients are convinced by staff that the old exams could miss something important and that they should opt for the new scan. So Angela agreed to experience the OptoMap eye exam, and her experience should be a warning to us all. She was told the OptiMap scan can see 80% to 85% of the retina and could read early warnings of eye disease um, better than a conventional exam. So diseases like you know, glaucoma and diabetes, cancer, and macular degeneration were discussed. So these scans map the cells of the eye as well as the tiny blood vessels that feed the eye. So patients are told that if the cells look like fish scales or a honeycomb, that this is the normal way a healthy appearance of the eye cells should look like, okay? So don't get alarmed. So the cost of the eye scans have kind of come down. Five years ago, it would have added an extra $100 to your eye exam, but today the scans can be included in your normal visit, a fee of maybe $99 to $170, depending on where you go. So the OptoMap scan is done by laser, and it produces a digital image of the eye in just a few seconds. Now, it can be similar to looking into a camera flash, so get ready for that. Now, in Angela's case, the scan on her left eye appeared normal, according to the doctor, but the scan of her right eye produced 
uh, anomalies, these tiny black specks. So the scan can pick up what they call pigmentation, which could indicate a serious health issue such as retinal tears. So in Angela's case, after returning for further examinations of her eye, it turned out to be an unthreatening adhesion or basically a false flag that something was wrong. So she had 24 hours of anxiety that her vision health was at risk. And in the end, the physician had resorted to the conventional exams to determine if there was a problem. Hmm. Now, according to some health experts, these laser eye scans are not for everyone, even though they are marketed to everyone and should not replace the conventional eye exam that uh, people should have every two years. So obviously, we do not need to ask hmm, if this OptoMap scan is storing, you know, your iris scan, scan data. You know, under the Affordable Care Act, all the health data is to be on one system. And we're told it is much harder for anyone to fake an iris scan as the odds of two people having the same pattern are one in seven billion. Now, iris biometrics are said to be safer and more secure than fingerprint biometrics. And criminals will dilate their pupils with eye drops. Biometric stuff. According to Dr. Larry Benjamin, he's an ophthalmologist for the Royal College of Ophthalmologists. <laughs> he says this screening, such as OptoMap, might be helpful for those with conditions such as diabetes. The majority of people have little anomalies in the backs of their eyes that are benign, not a problem. So if you could spot early warning signs in these cases, more could be done to prevent sight loss. But someone who has no family history of eye problems, disease, or symptoms should think twice about having a laser scan. So, you know, you could go through the same, you know, experience Angela had where it was, you know, scary, but it was no problem. Here's a quote also from Dr. Robert Glass. He's an optician in Manchester, United Kingdom. He says, a routine eye examination competently carried out by an optometrist using the standard conventional equipment in today's office practices can often be more effective at detecting eye disease. Hmm, that was his input. And lastly, let's see, uh, Dennis Robertson, MD, he says, if you choose to have a laser retinal scan, make sure it's a complement, a complement to, not a substitute for a traditional eye exam. End of quote. So there you have it. Doctors weighing in on that new technology, and we have to face it because face, even face recognition software is kind of secretly being used at every DMV office in the United States. You know, when you sit for your driver's license photo, you may be asked not to smile to improve the accuracy, especially with poor light exposure. So therefore, it's much harder for facial recognition software to identify someone in a crowd who is smiling. So smile up. <laughs> All right, and also here's another scan of the body that's, you know, kind of hot on the newswire. 
I want you to stick out your tongue and say, ah, because one of the newest scans invented is the tongue scan. That's right. The software to identify a person by their tongue is being developed in Hong Kong by the Polytechnic University Biometric Research Center. And apparently the shape of the tongue is unique to each individual. Lasers scan the tongue in just three seconds and create this 3D picture. Researchers at the VIT University in India have taken the digital image of the tongue and combined it with their analysis software to identify illness. So the color, the shape, the size, the texture of the tongue can indicate if you have a vitamin deficiency, if someone has pharmaceutical toxicity, or even a fungal infection. What do you think of that? Well, and then there's the body language scans. Yes, yes, law enforcement use body scans to log how a person walks, you know, their gait, their stride, how they talk and behave, you know, add the handwriting dynamics and even keystroke dynamics to the additional layers of identification, and voila. All this software has, you know, undergone extreme makeovers, producing massive algorithms to improve personal identification. And then your personal computer can even identify you. That's right, because computer companies are also tapping into the biometrics to manufacture their technology and offer more security. Um, uh, uh, Fuji is uh, selling peripherals like the Palm Secure PC Login Kit, which is a mouse that can authenticate the user by analyzing the user's veins in their palm. Check that out. So I have to ask, are we going to have public scans eventually everywhere? Because the body scans at airports could one day be a staple item in just about every public place. So think of a door frame as, you know, your body scanner, like the ones that you see at courthouses. Currently, everyone knows when they're being scanned. However, with the technology becoming more uh, micro in size, small and sophisticated, these scanners can be built in as part of entrances to public places, just like, you know, the tracking chips, you know, and, and, and products, clothes and stuff. Now, devices such as this will be promoted as a necessity to protect public health, as you know. So these scanners can alert store managers if someone entering the store has contagious disease. The same situation could be used at airports to prevent the spread of pathogens. Hmm? So this will be the age of biometrics turning the individual characteristics which we are born with into a human barcode and determining just about everything a person can or can't do. Check that out, right? But there is the vulnerability issue. The problem with the biometrics field, the problem it faces is this increasing risk of staying secure. So the data is extremely vulnerable to counterfeiting and Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. 
with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.